0: listening to the Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense. Discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes.
1: So, as is probably indicated by the title, this is our Pride Month special. We did do some disclaimers at the beginning, but I feel another one needs to be added. Feel free to call us out if we say something wrong. I have the privilege that comes with being assigned male. Zoe comes from a religious background. We might not be aware of certain things as a result of our upbringings. So let us know if we do something wrong, and we apologize in advance if we do. Also, this will become clear as we go, but the primary reason this is marked explicit is because when we're talking about medieval attitudes towards this sort of thing, we do have to get kind of specific about what exactly the behaviors were they were aware of and frowning upon. So if for any reason you're listening to this with kids, uh that might be an issue if you're not comfortable answering some sex ed-like questions that they might bring up as a result of this. If you are comfortable with that, I guess carry on. Uh, although, since we are talking about persecutions there are going to be some rough moments anyway. I'm just going to hand this over to Pastus.
0: So, anything to get into before we jump in?
1: Things that we need to record before we jump in, or things that we need to discuss before we start the actual episode? All of the above. I don't think any of the latter, but I do want to open up with, like, a disclaimer at the front.
0: Okay, yes. I had also considered this.
1: You want to go first with what you need to disclaim? <laughs>
0: Sure. Mine's fairly broad, but I'll I'll go ahead and pull it up. Okay. Yes. I figured we'd throw a trigger warning in there just for uncomfortable topics surrounding the realities of medieval sexuality, because mm. we live in a very privileged place and time where I guess not even privileged, just like human rights are human rights people. So, you know, we, we get to have those realities. But the Middle Ages did not have those those rights for individuals, so trigger warning for some of that.
1: Yeah, it's part of that like period of inequality that we refer to as recorded history. <laughs> like by any account, prehistory it was equality was actually pretty solid. But as soon as we got organized <laughs> enough to start writing it down, we started having things like kings.
0: Yes, and it all went to hell from there. Yes, aptly put. I am by no means a queer studies scholar. I have some studies on different aspects of queerness and sexuality and so on and so forth, but it's a very new field. And I'm personally not even sure it needs to be a field at all as compared to like a spectrum of study throughout all of the arts. That's sort of my opinion is that you should, you know, consider it in whatever art or science you are doing. Uh, so I will be relying quite heavily upon the other scholars that I have read and my own sort of basic studies into the topic. And I also wanted to mention that. Queerness is again, broadly speaking, not relegated strictly to the LGBTQ plus spectrum. Queerness generally does have an element of sexuality, but it's also about identity. I've read arguments where Grendel's mother in Beowulf is considered a queer character because she upends the traditional gender roles of women. And that's part of her monstrosity in her character. So that's an aspect of queerness.
1: Yeah, I've heard that argument too. It's a pretty good one, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. And then Amy Hollywood also cites in her article, the normal the queerness and the Middle Ages, that Carolyn Dinshaw, another uh, scholar, says, quote, at the same time, queerness allows her, that is Dinshaw, to include within the category of queer, a woman like Marjorie Kemp, whose sexual imagery remained resolutely heterosexual, even as her actions often worked against the norm, end quote. And I thought that was a great point, because You've brought up Kemp so many times. Yeah,
1: no, like her, her, uh, her special fantasy time with Jesus was definitely A, heterosexual and B, abnormal.
0: Yes. <laughs> so it, it, gets, it gets shoved into um, queerness as well. Yeah,
1: I don't mean abnormal in a bad way.
0: No, just Although I do have criticisms
1: of Marjorie Kemp as basically (laughs) a medieval Karen, but like that's a whole other (laughs) issue.
0: Yes. Also, general reminder that terms of identity like gay, lesbian, trans, non-binary, etc. are extraordinarily new and modern. And those definitions did not exist until recently. So the sexuality of the Middle Ages and even the Renaissance, because we'll touch on that a little bit, was much more fluid. And I'll be using broader terms like queer to cover some of those instances because we just don't have the information on how these people chose to identify themselves, especially in our terms. So also a, a note on that.
1: Related thing real quick. Yes, go. Also, when we talk about specific individuals, we don't know what their preferred pronouns are, especially mm-hmm. the ones that are engaged in some kind of like gender bending things. Right. So I'm going to try and use they, but I will probably slip and use the pronouns that the sources use, which are usually whatever they were assigned at birth.
0: Yeah. And it's also it's also weird because in cases where you have an instance of cross dressing is it also an instance of someone who wanted to be trans? Was it just cross-dressing? Not to say just, but...
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like cross-dressing is at least wading into the arena of queerness, even if it's strictly heterosexual. For because sure. Because it's a different gender presentation.
0: For sure, absolutely. But do those do those people who chose to... Like, for instance, the Shakespearean actors who cross-dressed... Were they considered trans? Did they want to be considered trans? I think that would be kind of stretching it as an argument.
1: Yeah, because for them it was just a job.
0: Right. Exactly. So I do. I do want to say they
1: actors. I don't know <laughs> if any actors are just straight. I've met a lot of theater kids.
0: <laughs> That's fair. I think a lot of theater kids are range into that spectrum of queerness as well. But just definitions and lines are going to be blurred by the nature of what we're discussing. So I want that to be clear and on the table, especially when it comes to gendering or trying to identify medieval individuals. Yes. So that's, that's my main disclaimer here. I don't know if you have anything else you want to add.
1: I do actually.
0: I have a color. I have a couple other notes, but I'll, I'll jump back in.
1: All right. So the main thing I wanted to put in as a disclaimer is that this isn't like a rainbow capitalism thing. Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, we're not taking advantage of the fact that it's Pride Month to, like, raise our profile. This is something that we want to talk about anyway, and this just seems like a good time for it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get lumped in with stuff like Raytheon changing their Twitter logo to be Rainbow.
0: Yeah,
1: no. You know, all that kind of Rainbow Capitalism BS. Really, this is something that should be talked about more, which is... Why there are queer studies departments, even though it's a very broad field, is because if we didn't have a queer studies department, all the other departments would just ignore the subject.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But generally, I think we can acknowledge that the need for, like, corporate-friendly queerness is kind of BS and should be rejected, and we should all remember that the first Pride was a riot, and I don't think this podcast can officially endorse the statement Honor Marsha P. Johnson by throwing a brick at a cop, but. Oh, whoops. I was going to bleep that out for legal reasons, but I guess it didn't work. Oh, no. You should also honor (laughs) Marsha P. Johnson by supporting your local sex workers.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's a stance that I have a variety of opinions on that I won't get into, and I'll just say, <laughs> don't forget to love each other. That's that's my general stance on on these sort of things is that we we need to have charity and grace for those who agree with us and those who disagree with us, um, even if we believe that they are wrong or misguided.
1: I have less charity, but I think that's because I have fewer um, friends and relatives who have strong opinions. On this matter that differ from mine.
0: That's fair. That's I've had a lot of tight Thanksgiving dinners, shall we say, where if you don't have grace, it's gonna it's gonna turn into an argument. But
1: yeah, yeah, I think I just haven't had the opportunity to practice that kind of.
0: <laughs> yes, but there we go. Yeah, it is Pride Month, and since generally the queer community does come together for Pride Month, we thought it would be a good time to touch on sort of the more unknown aspects of queerness in history because it's very difficult to find sources on queerness in medieval history as well as we'll get into
1: yeah for like pretty much the same reasons it's always difficult to find information on queer sources before like the 21st century
0: yeah i was gonna say like when 1980s like 70s maybe
1: yeah because every time someone sat down to try and like research it they tended to get suppressed Mm -hmm. like those pictures of nazi book burnings you see that that's just not just, like, books. That's the Hirschfeld Institute's archives and research. Yep. Because they were, like, the leading people doing research into gender and sexuality at the time, and the Nazis didn't like that idea.
0: hmm mm-hmm.
1: And that kind of thing is just kind of recurrent throughout... It's a broad and inaccurate term, but basically throughout like Western and especially Christian Western civilization is this very firm idea of gender norms and this need to violently suppress anything that challenges that.
0: Yes, actually, brilliant segue, because I did want to touch on that general note on the culture and religion of the time, etc., homosexuality did not appear as a word in the Bible until 1946. And most of the instances in the Bible where, where it's commonly translated as homosexuality or homosexual are actually references to pedestry, grooming, and gang rape. So these things we do not condone, obviously, but I feel like it needs to be said. Uh, And then do you want to explain what... I'm probably getting the pronunciation of the the word wrong, but pedestry, Pederasty? Pederasty. That's the word. I can't ever say it properly. Pederasty. Thank you.
1: Yeah. I think in its, like, loosest form, it's just, like, it's a sexual relationship between a fully grown person and a kind of, not child, but adolescent person. And most commonly in the sources we're looking at, it's... Something that was commonly practiced in ancient Greece where you'd like have an older mentor figure basically taking sexual advantage of their younger teenage boy students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like that was something that was common in the ancient world and that's why the Bible like feels the need to condemn it.
0: Yes, yes, precisely, especially because it was largely coercion and minors cannot give that sort of consent. Yeah, and I was going to say, like,
1: even if it was consensual, it wasn't consensual. It wasn't
0: consensual, exactly. And there are some instances where both parties could be adults, and there was also a resurgence of this sort of relationship in the Renaissance because the classical sources were rediscovered. And so, it, like, the Renaissance is steeped in Christian iconography and Christian culture, and yet all of this was going on at the same time. So there's something that I'll get into later with some of the sources is that homosexuality in particular, or these sorts of relationships were known as the unmentionable vice. Mm -hmm. Because one, you don't talk about it. And two, I mean, to call out the Catholic Church, even today, it's something that does go on behind closed doors and needs to be called out. So just for the context of what the culture is and instances in the Bible, homosexuality in itself is not specifically what is being referred to there. And I want to make that very, very clear, even if it has been twisted and used and changed and understood in different ways. So just want to clear that up. (laughs) Homosexual practice and pederasty are not the same thing.
1: Very much not. Although there are still people who equate them and that's Wildly incorrect.
0: Yes, precisely, precisely. Um, so that was my last disclaimer. I just wanted to throw that out there. But all right, anything, yeah. anything else? Again, like we're getting into some uncomfortable topics here, so we did want to, we do want to put that out there and say, you know, medieval sexuality can get weird and uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I think that's all I've got up top. So you've
0: got four case studies, basically. Yes, and you've got. A lesbian relationship, a gay relationship, and then two trans cases. Yes.
1: Two people who might be trans—one trans man, one trans woman. Okay, but obviously we don't know what they're. You know, like we said, okay. we don't know what specifically they would have identified as.
0: So why don't we jump in with the lesbian case and then the gay case? Because I have some stuff for each of those. And then we'll get into the two cross gender, transgender, etc. cases, and I can I can touch on the articles I have for those.
1: Oh, and it should be noted that like virtually all of these are very much debated, yeah. because until extremely recently, scholars who found this sort of thing in older texts would basically be like, people weren't gay in the medieval world, and just like <laughs> find some reason it didn't happen.
0: They were roommates. Oh my gosh, they were roommates. Sorry, I'm quoting yeah, exactly. a line. Yeah, two. Bros I actually know that hot one tub.
1: <laughs> because of the. Uh, there's been a thing going around of Cary Grant and his quote roommate, who is also oh. an attractive male actor. Oh my! All right, so this is a poem by a woman by the name of. Let's see if I can get this correct. It's French. <laughs>
0: Of course, it's French. Do you want to type it to me, and I'll pronounce it?
1: Sure, that's think- probably best.
0: Because <laughs> why would why would we ever have anything that's easy to pronounce in this podcast?
1: There are so many vowels in this name. Where's my chat window?
0: French doesn't make any any sense. I mean, I know it does, but it doesn't. I maintain oh. it
1: actually doesn't.
0: Oh, I don't like that. Yeah, right. B.R.I. de Roman. All right, so... That's my best guess.
1: According to my quick Google, the English equivalent of that name is Beatrice. So I'm going to call her Beatrice. Sounds good. So this is Beatrice of Roman, which is an area in southeastern France. She was what is called a, and I'm going to say this wrong, but troubairitz, which is apparently the feminine form of troubadour.
0: Oh, okay. I didn't know they had a gender differentiation with those words.
1: Since the ending for the masculine form is door, D-O-R, I assume that mm-hmm. this lo- the ending here, which is ritz, as in puttin' on the, is just <laughs> the... <laughs> you okay there? I'm good. Yep. It's just like the French or Akatan, as it may be, form of Ix, as in dominatrix.
0: I was thinking aviatrix, like aviator. Aviatrix. Yeah, you know that's
1: probably a better example.
0: <laughs> I mean, we're exploring all forms of queerness, so.
1: Yeah, why keep not? going. But anyway, she was a female troubadour, and she is known from one poem, which is a love poem directed to a woman, and this has caused a lot of scholars to try and figure out reasons that this is not lesbian's. <laughs> the two major theories are that either Beatrice is writing in the persona of a man, which you have to ask, like that's still a choice that that brings up some like gender issues. Yeah, of course. Or and the the other one, which honestly has more weight than the she's just pretending to be a man thing. The woman she's she's writing to is named Maria, so there's a theory that this is actually a religious poem. Like, no, she's not writing to her girlfriend Mary. She's writing to the Virgin Mary. Like, so that, it's
0: okay. I don't think that makes it
1: any better. It still doesn't really make it less gay, but I think no. it's at least plausible.
0: <laughs> Especially if it's a love poem anyway.
1: Yeah. So anyway.
0: Okay. So from Beatrice to Mary.
1: I'm working from a translation by Samantha Pius, who is contemporary. So this is not public domain. So I'm, I'm crediting her. Mm-hmm. And her version goes like this lady maria value and valiance joy and beauty and intelligence honor worth and hospitality noble speech and pleasing company fine sweet face and merry countenance gentle gaze and loving glance all these in you and not the trickster's art they draw me towards you with an honest heart i pray you if it please you fine amours and jouissance and sweet humility may bring the solace I've been longing for. And grant me, lovely lady, if it please you, the gift from which I draw all hope and happiness. In you lie all my love and lust and liking, though through you I drink up all I taste of gladness, and for you I've spent many hours sighing.
0: You know, this is, this is very gay. Yes, it's extremely gay. <laughs> 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 like, the word, the word lust is in there. I think it's pretty... Honestly, I
1: think the drinking up is probably the biggest flag. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And since your valiance and beauty elevate you over other ladies, none surpasses you. I pray you, if it please you, in song I dedicate to you, don't love a wooer who's untrue. Lovely lady, whom worth and joy exalt, and noble speech, to you I send my song, for gaiety and gladness are in you, and all good gifts a man might choose among. Now that last bit. The original is using man in the gender-neutral sense, like one might choose among, like they do in most medieval languages. Yes. Uh, Samantha Pius says in her translator's notes that she chose to still use that...
0: That term. Is
1: it um? Um, yeah. Yeah. Here's her explanation. In the case of the Akatan am, which can mean either one, like the modern French on, or man, like the modern French home... I have opted for the latter translation because I would like to draw your attention to the tension between, on one hand, the traditional masculinity of language, and on the other, the challenge which lesbian-slash-women's poetry poses to that tradition. Ooh. So that's entirely a translator's decision specifically to make it stand out.
0: I think that's a good decision, especially with the footnote.
1: Yeah, so it, even though it's the, the translation reads a man, we have to remember that that is—it could have been all good gifts— that one might choose among just mm-hmm. as easily. Mm-hmm.
0: I see. I wonder if that wasn't also a choice on Beatrice's part. It could be. Because that's something that, um, well, that I would do in poetry is pick a word that is deliberately obscure to play with those conceptions.
1: I will take your word for that because I am not a poet.
0: <laughs> that's fair. I, I have dabbled. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that is that is the whole poem. It's just wow. a little lyric.
0: Interesting. That's a sweet poem. See, I, and I think one thing that's very useful when it comes to reading and analyzing poems, especially from a lens of, is this a love poem or is this a religious poem? First, would you read it in church? Second, if a man read this poem, would you interpret it as a love poem to a woman? Right. I think those, are, those would be the two questions I would ask upon reading this.
1: And in both cases, that, the answer is definitely this feels more like a love poem than a religious poem.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, consider... What's Ho- Like, what is Hozier's, like, song?
1: I don't know who this person is. Very out of touch with modern culture.
0: Okay, hang on.
1: I assume they're a musician.
0: Give me 30 seconds. I have a point. Take me to church.
1: Oh, I have heard that song.
0: Yes, yes. It is very much a love song with deliberate religious overtones so
1: one might even say a lust song <laughs>
0: yes well there's also the angel of small death and cocaine and and what is it cocaine or codeine i don't remember whatever but that's also very deliberate as well with its religious and romantic or lustful imagery as well mm-hmm. so oh that's fascinating okay so i suppose i shall jump into some uh, discussion about medieval lesbianism now Go for it. Unless you have anything else that you want to add about this poem specifically.
1: No, but I would like to once again saying the translator's name is Samantha Pius. She gets all credit and we should link to her. I don't know. I'll find like her website or her faculty page or something. So we can link to it in the show notes. Precisely. Precisely.
0: Okay. So what I'm citing here is Hidden from History, Reclaiming the Gay and Lesbian Past. And this is a beautiful little collection that I actually found from one of the SMU religious studies professors. He was getting rid of some books from his library, so I purged it. And this article is Lesbian Sexuality in Medieval and Early Modern Europe by Judith C. Brown. A lot of the sources that I am pulling from combine medieval and early modern or Renaissance Europe together because we just don't have enough sources to differentiate or The sources that we do have are in that 1400-1500, you know, zone where it sort of bleeds into both periods. So lesbianism was mostly a foreign concept to medieval scholars and theologians, probably because most of them were heterosexual males or celibate males as well.
1: Or deeply closeted.
0: That too. Uh, Thomas Aquinas didn't even know how to define lesbian sex. Uh, Was it on par with masturbation as a sin? Or was it like sodomy? Like, how do we define this? Like, is there penetration? I thought you were going
1: to say, like, he didn't know how, like, physically it worked. Because I do know there are some straight people out there who have that problem.
0: But that's also part of the problem here. Because with sodomy, there is penetration. But he wasn't sure how it would work in terms of, like, the scissoring. Or, like, is there penetration? involved? Like, what does lesbian sex actually look like? So how quote-unquote bad is it as a sin? And so these are some of the questions that theologians either gloss over or that, like, Thomas Aquinas has one take and then Augustine has a different take and...
1: Imagine if we could give Thomas Aquinas access to the internet for just like a day (laughs) so he could Google what does lesbian sex look like? Oh no!
0: Oh no! Uh, So... No one really had an answer to this because the people who were writing the answers to this were all male and weren't in that kind of relationship and were not about to ask about it.
1: I was going to say, like, there are people you can ask.
0: Yeah, I know. But when you're like a theologian, are you really going to go down to to the local brothel and be like, excuse me? I have this question about how badly to condemn you.
1: Like at least ask a nun, like they might have some better insight.
0: Well, we're going to get into that. So, from from this perspective, first off, they didn't even know what lesbian sex would look like and sexuality was centered as phallocentric. So, the big conception here is why would a woman even want to be with a woman we know that all sexual pleasure comes from a man. And that is the like core assumption of medieval sex essentially even to the point where they're like oh yeah it makes sense that a man wants to be with a man even if it's against nature but what does a woman have that another woman wants that's that's how they perceived it
1: wow you could really tell they did not ask women about this at all (laughs) no they did not so like at the very least if they insist on being phallocentric one of them could explain what a dildo was that is not a recent invention.
0: No, no, it is not. Yes, yeah, so T- St. Thomas Aquinas talks about this in Summa Theologiae. They're not quite sure where it goes. Yes, yeah, so, quote, "...in light of the knowledge that Europeans had about the possibility of lesbian sexuality, their neglect of the subject in law, theology, and literature suggests an almost active willingness to disbelieve. Even Peter Damien's Book of Gomorrah, a long and detailed diatribe against homosexual acts, confines itself to the misdeeds of men. Dante, who encounters most types of sinners in his journey through hell and purgatory, does not come across any female sodomites." I thought that was fairly interesting because male homosexuality is very well known, particularly through the Renaissance, but they're not willing to touch on female sexuality whatsoever.
1: Yeah. I have to wonder if it's like discomfort about it or if they're just like, oh, who cares what women do? It's only important what men do.
0: I genuinely don't think it wasn't who cares, but it was more along the lines of why would a woman want to be with a woman?
1: Because like, I can get why they would be interested in, okay, women shouldn't have sex with men outside of marriage because they've got this whole, like, thing where they want to make sure that children are legitimate, like, blah, 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 blah. But Mm -hmm. obviously that can't really happen if women have sex with other women, except in that one story you read from Ireland. So maybe they just didn't care that much. Who knows?
0: Here's a late 16th century commentator. His name is... Brantome, and again, sixteenth century. This is later because that's all we have. So he notes,
1: listeners. Zoe is making faces that you should that I wish you could see <laughs> as, just, as she prepares herself to read this. It's
0: just a lot of face palming because the inherent like cognitive dissonance here is just unbelievable. But here we go. Because of this little exercise, that is to say women being with women, as I have heard say, is nothing but an apprenticeship to come to the greater love of men because after they are heated up as well on their way with one another, their heat does not diminish unless they bathe in a livelier and more active current because in the end, as I have heard many ladies tell, there is nothing like a man and what they themselves get from other women is nothing but enticements to go and satisfy themselves with men, end quote.
1: So his conception of this whole thing is basically the Renaissance equivalent of, like, two women making out at a party to get men's attention.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: That's terrible.
0: It's the most disappointing thing. It really is. I don't like it. No, no. Because he, he he can't even fathom the idea that, oh, no, women can, can be in a, a relationship with one another, either romantically or sexually. And he can't even deal with the idea that they get enough out of it. Or the fact that, I don't know, women can have more orgasms than a man can in a given period of time. No, he's just like, oh, they're just warming up. It's just foreplay.
1: By the way he's describing it, I'm not convinced he knows women can have orgasms, period.
0: That's also true. So there you go. For him, Quote, back to the book, as for many other men of the time, the attraction of women for each other was not to be taken as a serious threat to their own access to women's sexual favors, end quote, which I think is a very interesting point.
1: I mean, yeah, that kind of tracks. If you think about, like, the, the sexual morality at the time in a way where it's not based on moral feeling, but more based on societal structure and upholding, like... I can't think of another phrase than societal structure. Yeah. Then you can see why they'd just be like, you know what? It doesn't really seem to affect us at all. So why not?
0: Yeah, exactly. There's also, this is very, very interesting to me, back to the book, quote, while it was commonly believed that women had semen producing testes, their semen was thought to be less active and less important in human reproduction than that of men. Consequently, the notion that they could pollute each other like men through the spilling of seed in the wrong vessel was generally dismissed.
1: Well, I'm glad they got that far.
0: (laughs) So, you know, there is that. Quote, Theodore of Tarsus, for example, prescribed a penance of three years for a woman who practices vice with a woman, the same as if she practices solitary vice. In contrast, fornication between males was to be atoned through a penance of 10 years. Gregory III's penitential prescribed 160 days for women who had sex with other women and one year or more for male homosexuality. So in that sense, it is, quote unquote, a lesser sin. And I think a lot of this is is based on penetration, because as we jump down here, Antonio Gomez, who is a 16th century lawman, I think. I've lost it on the page. Anyway, he writes that burning should only be mandatory in cases in which, quote, a woman has relations with another woman by means of any material instrument,
1: end quote. Ah, so he knows about dildos. Yes, he
0: does. If, on the other hand, a woman has relations with any woman without an instrument, then a lighter penalty, such as a beating, could be applied.
1: (laughs) So (laughs) Well, isn't that nice? Yeah.
0: There were different uh, laws in different places based on homosexual... Law and practice. So, generally, male homosexuals could get the death penalty, but women who were in relationship with other women would have a lesser punishment, more along the lines of masturbation than sodomy. Also, let's
1: let's just take a moment to acknowledge that it's wild that priests were suggesting that women should have to do what was it three years penance for Mm -hmm. masturbation?
0: Yes. Well, that's just for masturbation across the board.
1: Like, just just the concept of that is insane. Yeah. We have to acknowledge that that is religion, man. You know, it's, it's wild to me. Like, what happened to, to, say, three Hail Marys and call me in the morning? Like, that seems like a more appropriate response. Also,
0: my question is, if you knew about this stuff and you knew about these punishments, why the hell would you bring it up in Confession? That's
1: true. I guess they're just, like, disincentivizing anyone from mentioning it.
0: Again, which is why it goes back to being, quote, the unmentionable vice.
1: Yeah.
0: You're not going to bring it up. But here we go. There's the Italian jurist Prospero Faranacci, which is, again, 16th century, taken at its most general, if a woman, quote, behaves like a man with another woman, end quote, according to Faraccini which, of course,
1: he means grilling steaks and <laughs> watching sports.
0: Of course, you know. Then she will be in danger of the penalties for sodomy and death. But looking at the particulars, if a woman simply made overtures to another woman, she should only be denounced publicly. If she behaves corruptly with another woman only by rubbing, she is to be subject to an unspecified punishment. And if she introduces some instrument into the belly of another, she should be put to death.
1: We're going to have to flag this episode as explicit or something.
0: Yeah. There's there's a lot here. <laughs> Hence the trigger warning. I like warning. that
1: at least they're they're starting to like clearly they've asked around and figured out how it physically works. Right. So that's a step forward in a way.
0: Yeah, by the by the 16th century, they did figure some of it out. They did apparently. They either prosecuted enough lesbians or walked in on enough lesbians or whatever to figure out that there were different, you know, kinds of ways for that to work.
1: Or maybe this is just what they do in conference of a Saturday night.
0: (laughs) Well, let me jump into that. Oh, this gets into the linguistics of lesbianism, which this is Brown. Judith Brown notes that lesbian as a word did not exist. So we didn't have a, a term for that. There was some written about nunneries and groups of women together.
1: Yeah, I I have to assume that, like, if you're a lesbian in the Middle Ages, convent is your best bet. Because it's basically like a legal reason why you will never have to sleep with a man.
0: Yeah, and it's a very quiet, hidden, private space that is not going to be in the way of men. Men are not going to come in and find out. And
1: possibly a number of other women have come there for the same reason.
0: Yes, precisely. So that might be your best bet. The readers of Anchoring Visa Middle English work were guided in sexual matters, including explicit, quote, unnatural things. Hidden in the middle of a narration for women concerning how to prevent men from looking at you, the text states, above all... That is written for you in your rule about outer things. This point, this article about being well-concealed, I want to keep best. To a woman who desires it, open in God's name. If she does not speak about it, leave things as they are, unless you think she'll be shocked afterwards. Anchoresses have been tempted by their own sisters.
1: Wait, 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 wait. What What does it mean by if she desires it, open?
0: I'm not sure. I want to say, talk about it. Like, have confession, have discussion about ah, it.
1: Okay, yeah, that makes way more sense in context. So I was like, does that mean, like, if she's into it, yeah, let her in and hang out? I don't think Because that doesn't sound so. like what he would be saying in this context. No,
0: because because the next line he's talking about, you know, she's going to be shocked. Anchor, You know, anchoresses have been tempted by their own sisters. Yes, and the commentary about this is the whole matter is described as avoidable unless possibly getting shocked about it. So basically, don't talk about it. Unless it's being brought up and it's a problem that you have to fix. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: So there we go. I need to read more about the life of Anchoresses. I feel like they had it made.
0: I don't know, man. I think I'd go crazy.
1: I've always wished Hermit was still a valid profession in today's world.
0: See, but like to be an Anchorite or an Anchoress, you, you like have a little cell and that's it.
1: Yeah, but, like, you get books and writing material, like, what else do you need? That's
0: true, I know, but if I wanted to be, like, I'd rather be a hermit where I go off into the mountains and then I can enjoy the that mountains. That's true, that's better. You know, and I'm not stuck in a cell, like, literally, it's called a cell. So, meh. anyway, Anyway, um, that's basically what I have about lesbianism. We do get into, I think, one of the, the trans cases in this first article. But, yep, yeah, so lesbianism was not very well understood, especially by men at this time.
1: Who were mostly the people writing about it because patriarchy.
0: (laughs) Yes. But when they did talk about lesbian sex, depending on, quote, how bad the sex was or how far they went or however you want to put it, there were different penalties for it. So it was considered a lesser sin unless you took on the role of a male and either topped another woman or penetrated another woman. So if you took on a male role, then you're basically being a sodomite and dot, 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 dot. We can punish you as a man for this.
1: That's actually an interesting thing. Like, yeah. Because if you think about it, it's still based on preserving the like patriarchal societal structure.
0: Well, it's it's the phallocentric basis of sex. Problematic. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but, like, it's just that the problem that they're trying to address, even if they're thinking about it in, like, the context of sin, instead of, like, preserving the unjust status quo, is instead of trying to address the issue of legitimate children, and going, like, it's not a big deal because we don't have that issue. Mm-hmm. Now they're like, but we also can't have women acting like men. Yes. They're moving to trying to preserve these gender roles by saying, like, it's worse if you're acting like a man.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's the It's the... The horrible question of who's the man in the relationship, and we're going to punish true. you worse.
1: I guess as long as you can give the accurate answer of neither of us, we're definitely both women, mm-hmm. then you get off with a lighter punishment.
0: You, you know, beating as opposed to death, so yeah. you get what you can.
1: Although I guess this also points to the fact that if you were a trans man at the time, that's a much more fraught issue.
0: Yes, which we'll get into because there's a, there's a little bit about that. But shall we jump into our other, our other text of male homosexuality?
1: Ah, yes. And this is actually related pretty closely to a lot of the areas you were just talking about. Woohoo! Because this is from Dante's Inferno. Oh boy, here we go. And one of the things that's interesting about this is this, this is him seeing the sodomites. Yes. But normally... When Dante brings up someone that he knew in life and puts them in hell, it's someone he didn't like. And he makes that very clear. Yeah. This is an example of him meeting someone in hell whom he likes and respects. Ooh. But he also still thinks he's going to hell. Oh, wow. So this is Canto fifteen of the Inferno. Uh, and this is a old translation by Charles Eliot Norton. 19th century, so it's a little... 19th century e, but I tried to I tried to find the least difficult to read thing that was on Happy Trust.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Dante's hard anyway, man.
1: Yeah, yeah, because it's 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 not only you know Italian; it's poetry, so yep. there's a whole other thing. But he's describing the area of hell for those who commit violence, and what you need to know is like it's it's all on fire, basically. It's what you would assume hell. Is and he's also going to describe like a an area that's basically like a uh, a place where there's a lowered area where people are walking in big circles and a upper area where Dante and Virgil are standing and watching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now one of the hard margins bears us on, and the fume of the brook overshadows so that it saves the water and the banks from the fire. As the Flemings between Wissant and Bruges. Fearing the flood that is blown in upon them, make the dike whereby the sea is routed, and as the Paduans along the Brenta, in order to defend their towns and castles, ere Chiarantiana feel the heat, in such like were these made, though neither so high nor so thick had the master, whoever he was, made them. There's a wall, there's like an earthwork that he's standing on. We were now so remote from the wood that I could not have seen where it was, though I had turned me round to look. When we encountered a troop of souls which was coming along by the bank, and each of them was looking at us, as at eve one is wont to look at another under the new moon, and they so sharpened their brows toward us as the old tailor does on the needle's eye, thus gazed at by that company I was recognized by one who took me by the skirt, and cried out, What a marvel! And when he stretched out his arm to me, I fixed my eyes on his baked aspect so that his scorched visage prevented not my mind from recognizing him. And bending down my own to his face, I answered, Are you here, Sir Brunetto? We now have a footnote explaining who this is. Brunetto was a particularly learned uh, scholar in Florence in the 13th century. He knows Dante personally because at one time Dante studied under him. And he said... Oh, my son, let it not displease thee, if Brunetto Latini turn a little back with thee and let the train go on. I said to him, with all my power, I pray this of you. And if you will, that I seat myself with you, I will do so. If it pleaseth this one, for I go with him. This one is Virgil. And to untangle all that, he's basically saying, like, why don't we sit down and chat if Virgil's okay with it?
0: Yeah, Virgil is his guide through the underworld.
1: Right. In case anyone's not familiar with Dante's Inferno, Virgil is the guide. Because he is a virtuous pagan, so he's technically in hell, but he's in limbo, which is, there's no actual punishment. They just hang out. Yeah. O son, said he, Brunetto, whoever of this herd stops for an instant lies then a hundred years without fanning himself when the fire smites him. Therefore, go onward. I will come at thy skirts, and then I will rejoin my band with Goeth weeping its eternal sufferings. So the punishment that the, that the sodomites are in, and they're in the area of violence because it's considered violence against nature, is that in this flaming landscape, they have to be continually moving, and if they stop at all, then they have to lie in the flames for a hundred years before they're allowed to get up again. "'I dared not descend from the road to go level with him, but I held my head bowed like one who goes reverently. He began, "'What fortune or destiny ere the last day brings thee down here? And who is this that shows the road?' There above, in the clear life, I answered him, I lost myself in a valley before my time was full. Only yestermorn I turned my back on it. This one, uh, and the footnote says, Dante never calls Virgil by name in hell, appeared to me as I was returning to it, and he is leading me homeward along this path. And he to me, if thou follow thy star, thou canst not miss the glorious port, if in the beautiful life I discerned aright. And if I had not so untimely died... Seeing heaven so benignant upon thee, I would have given cheer unto my work. But that ungrateful populace malign which descends from Fiesoli of old... This is like some attempt to divide the people of Italy into people who are descended from the Romans and people who are descended from other Italic peoples. That's what's going on there. Mm -hmm. And smacks yet of the mountain and the rock, will hate thee because of thy good deeds. And this is right, for among the bitter sorb trees... It is not fitting the sweet fig should bear fruit. Old report in the world calls them blind, it is a people avaricious, envious, and proud. From their customs take heed that thou keep thyself clean. Thy fortune reserves such honor for thee that one party and the other shall hunger for thee, but far from the goat shall be the grass. Let the fiesolian beasts make litter of themselves, and touch not the plant, if any spring still upon their dung heap, in which may live again the holy seed of those Romans, who remained there when it became the nest of so much malice. These people are wordy.
0: No, no, no. That's just Dante.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm including Dante in these people because he is half of the conversation. That's fair. If all my entreaty were fulfilled, replied I to him, you would not yet be placed in banishment from human nature. For in my mind is fixed and now fills my heart the dear good paternal image of you. When in the world, hour by hour, you taught me how man makes himself eternal, and in what gratitude I hold it, so long as I live, it behooves that on my tongue should, I, should be discerned. That which you tell me of my course I write, and reserve it to be glossed with other text by a lady who will know how if I attain it to her." This is some, like, mythos reference. Like, not mythos like mythology, but mythos is in the greater mythos of Dante's Divine Comedy. Sure. "'Thus much would I have manifest to you, if only that my conscience chide me not. For fortune, as she will, I am ready. Such earnest is not strange unto my ears. Therefore, let fortune turn her wheel as pleases her, and the churl is mattock. My master then upon his right side turned himself back and looked at me, then said, He listens well who notes it. Not the less for this do I go on speaking with Sir Brunetto, and I ask, Who are his most known and most eminent companions? Spill the tea. Who else is being punished for sodomy down here?
0: Okay. Quick question. How do we know that he's being punished for sodomy? Because he's very wordy and I'm afraid that I missed
1: it. It is part of the context of this going going through this circle. Is there like ah. this area is where the sodomites are. So everyone who's running in this group is a sodomite.
0: Ah, okay. Uh, okay. So he's saying like, all right, who else is here? Yeah. because like, I like you, but let's see if any of my enemies are down here. Exactly. Cool.
1: And he, to me, to know of some is good. Of the others, silence will be laudable for us, for the time would be short for so much speech. Basically, there's a lot of them. Yes. In brief, know that all were clerks and great men of letters and of great fame, defiled in the world with one same sin. Priscian goes on with that disconsolate crowd, and Francesco of Accorso. Priscian is a 6th century grammarian. Francesco is a lawyer from 13th century. And thou mightest also had seen, had thou Hadst thou had desire of such scurf? Him who by the servant of servants was translated from Arno to Baciglione, where he left his ill-trained nerves. Uh, This is Bishop Andrea de Mozzi, according to the footnote, who also uh, is from the 13th century. Gotcha. Of more would I tell, but the going on in the speech cannot be longer, for I see yonder a new cloud rising from the sand. Folk come with whom I must not be. Let my tesoro, which is the work that... uh, this guy is best known for, be commended to thee, in which I am still living, and more I ask not. Then he turned back, and seemed of those who run at Verona for the green cloth across the plain, this is a annual race in Verona. And of these, he seemed the one that wins, and not he that loses. And that's the end of the canto. Okay. So, he meets this guy who's like his old mentor, and he clearly has a ton of respect for him, and is like, I... It sucks that you're down here. Like, I get it. I know it's a sin. I know you committed it, but like, I let's let's catch up just a little bit. Like, how oh. how how are you? And I think that says a lot about like the the way this was viewed in the like Florentine intellectual circles where Dante was running. Where they're like, yeah, it's a sin, but like these are otherwise good people.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's extraordinarily telling, especially for what I'm about to jump into here.
1: I thought it might be. I thought this might be relevant.
0: Yes. <laughs> so you go on. Uh, okay. So this is, uh, again, from Hidden from History. Uh, and the article itself is Homosexuality in the Renaissance, Behavior, Identity, and Artistic Expression by James M. Saslow. So again, this is jumping into the Renaissance, but it kind of touches early enough to be medieval that, that it works. So first off... James notes, or I'm sorry, Saslow, let's be professional here, notes that first, for many individuals, homosexual relations were only one element of what we would call bisexuality. Zoe's note, or pansexuality, or whatever. Yeah. You know, language. This was written in the early 90s?
1: Or just like... One aspect of what we would call queerness, I would say. That's also true,
0: yeah. Second, homosexual activity occurred mainly, though not exclusively, between adult men and boys or adolescents. And third, the surviving evidence about these relations is incomplete and biased because of the gravity of the crime and the nature of the sources. So he's putting his own little disclaimer in here, akin to what we did. So, uh, okay, trigger warning, because I just think this is... Horribly gross, but the point here that he cites is the prevalence and character of male bisexuality reflect two important determinants of sexuality in this period. It was often associated with a generalized permissiveness and even license, and it is consistent with adult men's position at the pinnacle of a social system that privileged patriarchy, age, and power. Sigismondo... Malatesta, lord of Rimini, had a reputation for sexual atrocities involving both boys and women. His French contemporary, Giles de Rae, was executed after sexually abusing and murdering 100 children of both sexes. Jesus. Yeah.
1: Future Max speaking, in case you, like me, are so bad at French orthography and pronunciation that... You did not understand that name when Zoe pronounced it correctly. It is spelled G-I-L-L-E-S space D-E space R-A-I-S in case you wanted to look him up, because it is kind of wild, and the reason I was able to recognize this name on the second listen while I'm editing is because he's thought to be the inspiration for Bluebeard. Yeah, that Bluebeard. The fairy tale villain. Oh. So Wait, why is this in the Homosexuality in the Middle Ages article? This seems like just a serial killer.
0: Because he abused children of both sexes, so... They're
1: pre-adolescent. Does it even matter at that
0: point? <sighs> Not at that point, but his, his point here is that the pederasty came back with a vengeance in the Renaissance. Mm, okay. The Earl of Rochester wrote blithely that, quote, Missing my whore, I bugger my page. So, it's disgusting... And the blithe nature of men being able to assert that power in a homosexual way was one, very well known, and two, allowed to a certain degree. Um, quote, the intimate living arrangements of an all-male clerical world and the opportunities that educational and religious duties afforded for privacy and emotional intimacy, while not themselves, quote, causes of homosexuality, may have contributed circumstantially to its expression. Which, again, we understand this. We, we just talked about this with um, nuns, anchorites, also, you know, priests and monasteries. We've got, you know, like boarding schools, As well. So that's sort of the more violent, gross nature of this expression of queerness and sexuality. But we also have some examples of it being a good, consensual, good relationship. So, archives of secular courts occasionally yield a tantalizing microhistorical glimpse of real individuals. Two Venetian boatmen arrested in at 1357, which is definitely medieval, had remained mm-hmm. together willingly for several years, shared a business, and when interrogated separately, lied, hoping to protect the other. So, again, you know, they were roommates, but were they? Yeah. Were they really like? Eh. Uh, there's... Frankly, I
1: have my suspicions about Dante and his teacher, too.
0: Oh, 100%. Like, Leonardo and and his assistants as well.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: That's a very well-established theory. Like, they were drawing, you know, dicks in the margins of yeah, all there. Yeah, I was going to
1: say, like, I, I thought it was just accepted that Leonardo da Vinci was gay.
0: Well, he was arrested for sodomy. But in terms of his relations with his assistants, it's a little more amorphous. But it's sort of yeah. one of those implied things. Even though this is much later... There's also the account of Queen Christina of Sweden, who abdicated in order not to marry. But basically what she did, it's a great little case study, is she told the guy who she was supposed to marry, oh, you're the son I've always wanted. Here you go. I'll abdicate the throne and go live in the countryside. So I think that's a very interesting perspective of asexuality or bisexuality or whatever, queerness.
1: That's also possibly like harsher than going like, oh no, I, I just think of you as a brother. <laughs> I think of you as a son.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, um,
1: <laughs> pretty debilitating. Like that's, that's definitely worse. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Uh, but an interesting part about these relationships when they're not coercive and destructive in that sense is is sort of this idea of, like, the Greco-Roman, like, oh, I'm in love with your mind, you just have such brilliant ideas, which kind of leads into... I don't know if any of you have read The Phaedrus. Please don't. Who is it by? It's by one of those horrible old Greek men.
1: Phaedrus? Isn't that a a Plato? Or am I thinking of something else?
0: Plato, who wrote The Phaedrus, and it's got, like, your soul is a winged dick that flies up to heaven, and, like, that's basically...
1: The winged dick was a pretty common classical symbol of good fortune. Future Mac again. I know this is a tangent, but this is something I find interesting, and I want to talk about it really briefly. So the winged dick, or as it's appropriately known, the Fasconum or Fasconus, was a magical charm or protective amulet used in the classical world. Very popular among the Romans and may well have dated back to the ancient Greeks. Possibly related to the Greek god uh, Priebus, but here is the fun thing: because Fascanum was the name of this magical amulet, we eventually got the verb fascinare to use the power of the fascanum or to practice magic, which became also meaning like to enchant, and from this we got the English word fascinate. So I just think it's fun that to be fascinated at one point meant to be enchanted by a winged dick. Anyway, back to On Topic.
0: True, true. But he's like associating it with your soul and then coming into like understanding, you know, your, your place in the universe, which I don't know. The only thing I have to say to that is big winged dick energy. I guess (laughs) Uh, I read it in freshman year of university and just (laughs) was not ready for that conversation in class, but sure. But going into this, In contrast, Renaissance humanists and theologians maintained a sharp conceptual divide between acts and feelings. Canon law outlawed as sodomy certain physical acts, ambiguously embracing all forms of non-procreative sexuality. While passionate but chaste male emotional intimacy, modeled on classical notions of amicitia, uh, which comes from amicus meaning friend in the Latin, was Mm -hmm. held up as the highest earthly happiness. Erasmus echoed Fincino's commentary on Plato's Symposium, which had declared some men are better equipped for the offspring of the soul than those for the body. They, therefore, naturally love men more than women because men are much stronger in mental keenness, essential to knowledge. <sighs> <laughs> These idealized unions were often the emotional equivalent of a marriage. The Florentine intellectuals Giovanni Pico della Mirandola and Girolamo. B and Vianney were buried in the same tomb like a husband and wife. So, there's a lot to unpack there.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if you have this in there, but that was this was also a thing in monasteries for a lot of the medieval periods. There was a ceremony called the Adelfo something. Adelfo Hoesis. But The literal translation is brother-making, but it's basically like taking two monks and de- doing a semi-marriage ceremony to say, like, you two are life partners now. Oh, wow. And there's so much argument over whether this was, like...
0: A gay marriage, essentially.
1: Yeah, or if they're just roommates. Oh,
0: my gosh. I know that pirates would do that. Or naval officers, well, not officers, but if you were on board a ship, and this happened more in pirate crews or privateering crews mm-hmm. in the golden age of piracy, which is around 1720, 1740, you could basically create a will and your partner would get your inheritance, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. You would basically do everything together. I mean, you're on a ship, quarters are tight anyway, but this was an right. established relationship here. Uh, so I just find that immensely amusing that oh no we're not gay for each other we just you know love each other because your mind is just so much more keener than that of a woman (laughs) like what do you do with that what do you do with that
1: this is another one of those like if you have a bunch of people of the same sex isolated in one area they're gonna start not caring so much about gender roles because like true people need love there needs to be an outlet Mm -hmm. and like at a certain point you go like you know what maybe gender is bullshit and we can just ignore it for a bit. Yeah. I, I do want to add something else that's definitely outside our time period, but is relevant to naval matters. Oh yes, go. There is a famous quotation attributed to Winston Churchill that describes naval tradition as, and I quote, Rum, sodomy, and the lash. <laughs>
0: I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah, I know. Naval history, like specifically English naval history, has a very rich tradition of all three of those. <laughs> so, oh, I appreciate you bringing that in there. Also, jumping back, Ariosto's satires, and this is, again, 16th century, early 16th century, he asserts that few humanists are without that vice and reported that the vulgar laugh when they hear of someone who possesses a vein of poetry and then they say it is a great peril to turn your back if you sleep next to him so this is like a Wait, hold on, don't hold bend on, down hold on. and that drop the soap?
1: They're like, poets don't drop the soap around poets
0: like if you hear oh like this guy just you know started dabbling in poetry it's like oh don't drop the soap around him then wow
1: That is a much older association than I would have thought.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: I thought the like, oh, poets are gay thing was like a late 20th century development.
0: No, no, this has been a forever development.
1: Also, we probably shouldn't casually make jokes about prison rape, but don't drop the soap is kind of stuck in our culture. It's a
0: very well known reference, which is why I I used it, because don't turn your back if you sleep next to him has the same implications. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Continuing on with that. Popular wisdom was not without basis. Francis Bacon, who wrote a popular essay on friendship, obviously grasped the wider implications of Greek love, since even his mother knew that he slept with his servants. So there you go, Francis Bacon.
1: I like how you were able to actually pronounce the quotations around friendship there.
0: (laughs) You know, friendship. (laughs) They're friends. They're very close friends. But here we go. Another interesting element of male sexuality is that, unlike lesbianism, this does have linguistic terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, So here we go. Quote, as a part of a broader effort to demarcate male and female social roles and appropriate gender constructs, contemporary theory drew a sharp distinction between the active, that is the masculine, and passive, that is the feminine, sexual roles. Italian verbs, like classical Greek, differentiated between the active and the passive roles by corresponding grammatical voice.
1: So we, just to be clear for our listeners, when you say active and passive roles, you do mean like top and bottom, correct? Right?
0: Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, he who is doing the penetrating, the topping, etc. And he who is on the bottom. Yes, so the top was known as the the verb here is sodomitare, which is to sodomize. And for the latter, bottom is farsi sodomitare, to let oneself be sodomized. So as a result... Adult bisexual men who consistently played the active role could engage in homosexual acts without being considered to deviate from the norms of their gender role. Whereas if you are on the passive end, you are basically making yourself effeminate.
1: And that has a deep tradition in, I think, I'm pretty sure you're quoting Italian there, mm-hmm. because the Romans had that did that same distinction for the same reason. Yes, precisely.
0: Their mocking tone indicates that habitual passivity was considered a fundamental deficiency, and they reveal a complex and misogynistic theory imputing a distinct psychological nature to such individuals, which I thought was
1: interesting. Mm-hmm. I just want to check real quick. Are we going to talk about the Viking words for it?
0: No, go into it because I I'm I'm familiar with the idea but no one has actually like explained that study to me so I can't speak intelligently
1: on it I'm mostly speaking from what I've heard from taking classes with Dr. Hughes yes for the listeners this is dr. Sean Hughes he is my advisor and also he does a lot of like scholarship in this area and he's a wizard and he may be a wizard but in what we're going to call Viking culture, even though that's wildly inaccurate because Viking is a profession and not, like, a nationality, but that's what people know it by. They did make that same distinction, but it wasn't about, like, who got the bigger, like, legal punishment, but it was about the game of honor. And for this reason, they had a word that was earg uh, or rager, which the, the like, literal meaning is just bottom like it's the person who bottoms. But the connotation is much closer to another English word, which I will not say out loud, but it's British for cigarette. Uh-oh. Future Mac here. Another possible translation that is more or less of the correct connotation, but that you could actually print in a translation that you write would be sissy. Uh-oh. And for a period in Iceland, it was actually illegal to call someone that because they would be bound by honor to kill you for it. And so it was like, this word is guaranteed to start a blood feud. Therefore, you can't say it. Oh, wow. The the whole thing was like, as long as you're playing the man's role, as one might say, Mm -hmm. like you're still masculine, it's still fine. Mm -hmm. But if you're bottoming, if you're playing the woman's role, again, like... It's ridiculous that there are man's role and women's role, but you know that's how they thought of it. Then it is a slight upon your honor.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So if someone accuses you of it, you have to defend your honor.
0: Yeah, which again goes back to like if a woman did take on that topping role, she was to be punished as a man because she's infringing upon that gender role, mm-hmm. which is fascinating also going into like using those terms in that sort of language here okay so here's leonardo our favorite leonardo da vinci
1: <laughs> one of at least two ninja turtles who were probably gay because <laughs> oh you know michelangelo i'm pretty sure was too well
0: i'm gonna get to him in just a minute so we've got leonardo yeah, so- and michelangelo here we are <laughs> Uh, Anyway, Leonardo alluded bitterly to his earlier sodomy accusation. When I painted our Lord as a boy, you put me in jail. If I were now to paint him as a grown man, you would do worse to me. And going on to Michelangelo... As his poems and other drawings make clear, he was deeply torn between chaste Christian ideals and the temptations of the flesh, calling himself prisoner of an armed cavalier that is Cavalieri. He lamented that my senses and their own fire have bereft all peace from my heart. So this is a kind of heartbreaking example of someone who very much valued their faith, but also understood that a deep part of their identity went against the cultural ideals of how that faith presented. And there was not space for him in society to hold the two together, and it
1: sort of tore him apart. You can almost see like him, him as, if he lived today, he'd be one of those people who describes themselves as ex-gay and like goes to special therapy to try and force the gay thoughts out. Mm-hmm. Because God hates that. Yeah. That whole like tragic area. Yeah.
0: Yeah, which is, in my opinion, a very... Heartbreaking misunderstanding of what the Bible is talking about in that sense, and we we've briefly alluded to that already. But again, that those pressures are have been around for ages, all the way you know back then for Michelangelo, you know even formerly before that. Um, so that is that is not new whatsoever. But there is kind of a funnier version here where Batsi, which is. Is it just his name? They're not going to give me any context for who he is.
1: Everyone knows Batsy. I guess
0: so. Anyway, he he won a horse race in Siena, and Siena has a fantastic... Uh, Classic Batsy. Yes. Anyway, Batsy (laughs) defiantly threw back in his fellow citizens' faces their mocking nickname for him, insisting upon being publicly announced as Il Sodoma, the Sodomite, which is arguably the first coming out statement in Western history. So I thought that was great because he's just like, I don't care anymore. You know, I won this horse race. What are you going to do to me? I've got money. Call me the Sodomite.
1: I would argue that there are some uh, classical sources that count as coming out statements.
0: I mean, you've got Sappho, you know, slender Aphrodite has overcome me with longing for a
1: girl. I was actually thinking Elagabalus, but yeah.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah, by the way, guys, if you if anyone is not familiar with Elagabalus, you need to either read the Historia Augusta description of his reign or listen to Totalis Rankium's episode on him because he's amazing. He's wild. Like not in the sense that he was a good emperor because he was a teenager and teenage emperors are always terrible, but he he had a great sense of humor. <laughs>
0: Inventor of the whoopee cushion.
1: Yeah, he he in- invented a whoopee cushion that was better than our whoopee cushions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you want to explain it for people who are no? Aware please of the- do. All right. So, Elagabalus's whoopee cushions were huge. It was this like leather thing that was sewn together to be the size and shape of a regular seat. And he'd, like, drape it in cloth so it looked like a, a just a normal, like, chair or whatever Roman sat on. And then at points during the dinner, he'd have a servant casually slip behind and pull the plug so that not only would it make the flatulent <laughs> sound, but the whole thing would deflate and dump the guy on the floor. What a, what a bastard. My favorite Elagabalus Frank. Which, which I'm going to share now since we're on the subject, and I Please love. Please do. Is it story. the tiger
0: one? It is. Oh, okay, okay, go, go, go. Okay, so this is terrible. We shouldn't be laughing. He's a horrible person.
1: Oh, I, I disagree, but <laughs> um, so. He had a lot of parties, people got drunk, people passed out, and they'd, like, obviously just be put in, like, a bedroom somewhere in the palace until they woke up. And what Elagabalus would do is he'd bring some of his tame lions and tigers and just leave them in there so that when people woke up, there'd be, like, a lion asleep on the bed with them or just chilling in the room. See, I never heard
0: that they were tamed. Oh, no,
1: they were tamed. Even the Historia Augusta, which, like, trashes him completely, describes them as harmless.
0: Okay, wonderful. Okay, I I rescind my opinion that he's terrible.
1: Like, it was was entirely just because it was funny to watch them freak out when they woke up and there was a lion (sighs) in the room.
0: (laughs) What a guy. Like, I mean, when you put a teenager in power, that's exactly what a teenager in power is going to do.
1: Yeah, like mo- most of the most of the actual negative stuff about him is like he was a teenager and all teenage emperors were terrible except for the ones who were just puppets and didn't actually have any power. Right. But one of the other reasons people ups- people were so upset about him and this is why I said that he might count as an early coming out story is I am like 100% sure Ellegabalus was trans oh. because
0: it oh, is that's said
1: right. It is said that he offered a huge reward for anyone who could figure out how to do what today we would call gender confirmation surgery.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's right. He would cross-dress a lot
1: yes. as well. It, it is also noted that he, to use the modern term, in his romantic escapades, he was a bit of a size queen, it is said. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I did not know that. But the, re- the reason I bring him up here is he basically publicly came out and said, like, I would rather be a woman who can make that happen for me.
0: Wow, I mean, even as an emperor, that's pretty ballsy.
1: Well, a lot of this is probably because he wasn't from Rome. He was from, like, a more eastern region where the, like, deeply misogynistic and patriarchal Roman Mm -hmm. attitude hadn't taken hold as much. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Fascinating.
1: He he is one of my favorite historical figures. And I always wonder if he would have been, like, a really great emperor if they hadn't killed him after only a few years.
0: I don't know, man. That's... That's one of those things that you just sort of want to see play out, but not in your own lifetime.
1: I don't know. It, if he had lived to legal drinking age, I would want to get a beer with him. Or That's her.
0: fair. That's because fair. Because
1: I, I think also if there were a situation where I could get a beer with Ella Gabalas Ella would probably be up on pronouns and may not want to be called him.
0: That's fair. I just really enjoy that like your pronunciation of their name is so different because the way that I've always heard their name pronounced was uh, Elagabalus.
1: I'm actually not sure, because I don't speak Latin. or I have I, no I read idea. I Latin a little bit. But. See,
0: my Latin pronunciation is what I call ecclesi because I have done both ecclesiastical and classical Latin, and now it's just a horrible mishmash of both, so my pronunciation of English and Latin is just wrong. But anyway, after this lovely digression... <laughs> Yes, but that is that is what I have about the male homosexual relationships is that a lot of it was a pederasty, unfortunately, but there are instances where you do have individuals who are steadfast in their identity and for instance, you know, go to prison for it or like Michelangelo really suffer for it or like apparently Batsy who stand up and say, you know, I don't care.
1: Mm-hmm. So there you go. And we can all note that. The reason that we hear a lot more about the pederasty thing than the loving relationship thing is probably just because people didn't like talking about it. And Mm -hmm. so anyone who was like in an adult homosexual relationship either had to keep it secret or if they came out, probably it wouldn't get written down in any way but a really euphemistic.
0: Yeah. And additionally, a lot of the records that we have are from trials and inquisitions, Mm -hmm. So it's a lot like the witch trials. So what do we know about witchcraft? Well, we know a lot more about the prosecution of it than we do about the witchcraft itself and the magic itself. So That is true. mm -hmm. It was so difficult to try and find anything on actual magical practice when everything was just the trials, the trials, the trials.
1: (laughs) God, just imagine how much we would know if... Like, the ideas of women and gender and sexual minorities throughout history had managed to not only get down in writing, but survive. Yeah. But so many of the stuff that even did manage to make it to writing got burned at some point.
0: Yep. Even recently, which is a shame. Even
1: recently, yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. So, shall we go on to our two trans cases? Or, yes. or I guess we'll, we'll put this in the other queer
1: yeah, section. Yeah. Gender non-conforming in some fashion is probably the most accurate way. There is a record from December 1394. This is a legal case, but it's not really clear whether there was a punishment involved. It's just like this is a thing that happened.
0: Okay, question really quick. Uh, Is this an ecclesiastical case or a law case? Because... Depending on where you're living and at what point you're living, the two were very different. And in some cases, there were a lot of secular laws. And in other cases, there were a lot of church laws. And this is a very foreign concept to us, especially in the States, because church and state are separate. Uh, But in the Middle Ages, you could go to jail because the church decided you did something wrong. And you would have a trial in the church and it would be done in that way. And I am not read up on that as much as I should be and want to be. But that distinction is important to make. Because one of the articles I have here is about sodomy in medieval secular law, which is different than ecclesiastical law or church law.
1: Scanning through the article on this that I have, which we'll, of course, link to in the show notes. And by show notes, I mean blog. Yes. Here is the, uh, a paragraph that seems to me to indicate that this is a secular case. Okay. Despite the general rule that sexual offenses were matters for the church courts, in some cases the city of London took charge of these offenses. Prostitution and procuring, for example, involved public order. The temporal courts dealt with them for that reason, so that the same people might be prosecuted in both jurisdictions for the same offense. Even a few adultery and fornication cases ended up in the city courts, most of them involving priests. The city authorities seem to have been particularly eager to bring cleric sexual transgressions to light, and this may be why they recorded the examination of Reikiner, who is the person we're about to talk about. Indeed, Reikiner's awareness of their interest in rooting out clerical offenses may have prompted his concluding remark that he preferred priests to his other customers.
0: In that way?
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, so one of the things that is wild to me about this is that in, like, virtually always, I can see this being recorded with almost exactly the same approach of sheer confusion as to how to deal with it if this were 500 years later in San Francisco instead of in 14th century England.
0: Wow, fascinating. Also, really quick, I just want to point out here that from that quote alone, it's interesting to me that much of the forbidden... Things that we have been discussing are increasingly and maybe even more prevalently found in the church. For instance, we've talked widely about how most of the necromancers that we have records of were clerics. Similarly, it appears from what you're saying here that there were a good portion of homosexuals who were clerics as well. Or at least that that's how the city was perceived, perceiving mm-hmm. that in this case.
1: Yeah, it's its actually really fuzzy in to, in this case as to whether this should constitute homosexuality or something else. Interesting. But another note before I get into just reading it. Yes. This case has often been ignored because the person who published the compilation of all these like cases in the 1920s and 1930s in this particular volume, he said, uh, The present volume, unlike its predecessors, is described as a calendar of select pleas in memoranda because a somewhat larger number of formal entries and records of small debt actions have been omitted. Care has been taken, however, to include all passages which seem to add in any way to our knowledge of the times. And... I will uh, tell you how he summarizes this case after I read you the details of the case. And you can decide whether he included all things that would be relevant or if maybe he left some things out because people like to suppress this kind of thing.
0: Oh, all right. Fascinating.
1: So, this is the uh, translation I've got. On 11 December 18, Richard II, which is the 18th year of Richard II's reign,
0: regnal years.
1: Woohoo! ...were brought into the presence of John Fresh, mayor, and the alderman of the City of London, John Britby of the County of York, and John Reichenor, calling himself Eleanor, having been detected in women's clothing, who were found last Sunday night between the hours of eight and nine by certain officials of the city lying by a certain stall in Soper's Lane and committing that detestable, unmentionable, and ignominious vice. In a separate examination held before the mayor and aldermen about the occurrence, John Britley confessed that he was passing through the High Road of chief on Sunday between the above-mentioned hours and accosted John Rikiner, dressed up as a woman, thinking he was a woman, asking him as he would a woman, If he could commit a libidinous act with her, requesting money for his labor, Raikkonur consented. Incidentally, all of the gendered pronouns that attach to Raikkonur are in brackets. And the translator says it looks like they were so confused about writing this that they just avoided gendered statements, never talking about Raikkonur.
0: Wow. Uh, Because the
1: original is in Latin, where you don't have to include pronouns.
0: Oh, yeah, that's true. That's very, very true. So, okay, really quick, because I'm curious and I just want to know. So this um, John fellow who accosts Eleanor. Yeah. Please tell me that he is also in court for... Yes. You know, getting a prostitute.
1: Yes, they are both in court because he's he's the John. Uh, as one might say. <laughs> well done. One assumes he is also the top because he thought Eleanor was born female.
0: Yes. Okay, so is the question in this case are we punishing them for sodomy or are we punishing them for prostitution because you could you can engage in sodomy which is just in their term terminology anal sex like you can engage in that with a woman and you could also have punishments for that in a straight relationship so what is this case focusing
1: on it's really unclear Like, they seem to be deeply confused by this whole series of events, so they're just kind of recording what happened.
0: Fair enough. This is a very confusing situation.
1: Anyway, requesting money for his labor, and remember, his is the translator putting that in. It's all in, every time there are male pronouns associated with Raikener, they're in brackets because there are no pronouns in the Latin describing Wow. Raikener consented, and they went together to the aforesaid stall to complete the act and were captured there during these detestable wrongdoings by the officials and taken to prison. And John Reichenor, brought here in women's clothing and questioned about this matter, acknowledged himself to have done everything just as John Britby had confessed. Reichenor was also asked, asked who had taught him to exercise this vice, and for how long and in what places and with what persons, masculine or feminine, he had committed that libidinous and unspeakable act. He swore willingly on his soul that a certain Anna The whore of a former servant of Sir Thomas Blount first taught him to practice this detestable vice in the manner of a woman. He further said that a certain Elizabeth Browderer first dressed him in women's clothing. She also brought her daughter Alice to diverse men for the sake of lust, placing her with those men in their beds at night without light, making her leave early in the morning, and showing them the said John Reichenor dressed up in women's clothing, calling him Eleanor and saying they had misbehaved with her. To summarize with that, this is another person who's engaged in sex work. And her daughter is the one doing the actual work in this case. But in order to preserve her daughter's honor, she switches her out with John slash Eleanor before the men wake up and go like, no, it was was this. This was was the person you were with. Wow. He further said that a certain Philip, rector of Thaden Garnon had sex with him as with a woman, in Elizabeth Browderer's house, outside Bishopsgate, at which time Reichenor took away two gowns of Philip's. And when Philip requested them from Reichenor, he said that he was the wife of a certain man, and if Philip wished to ask for them back, he would make his husband bring suit against him.
0: Wait, 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 wait. Eleanor's wife of a certain man?
1: Eleanor stole one of her John's clothing, and when he asked for it back, she said, my husband will sue you if you make trouble.
0: Ah. This is an
1: imaginary husband. Oh, okay, okay. Reicherner further confessed that for five weeks before this feast of St. Michael's last, he was staying at Oxford, and there, in women's clothing and calling himself Eleanor, worked as an embroideress. And there in the marsh, three unsuspecting scholars, one of whom was named Sir William Foxley, another Sir John, and the third Sir Walter, practiced the abominable vice with him often. John Reichner further confessed that on Friday before the Feast of St. Michael, he came to Burford in Oxfordshire, and there dwelt with a certain John Clerk at the Swan in the capacity of Tapster for the next six weeks. Uh, he's working at a pub.
0: Right. Can I just say, can I just say that it is incredible to me how many people have been accepting of, is it Reichner? Of Reichner?
1: Yeah, I don't know how to say it. It's R-Y-K-E-N-E-R.
0: It's in Reikiner. Yeah. But they're accepting of Reikiner and how they choose to present.
1: I really feel like a lot of the impression we get of like what is, of things that are wrong and disallowed and, mm-hmm. and, abandoned by all right-thinking people are really just like the people at the top of society trying to impose their values on everyone else. Whereas Oh, yes,
0: because those are the people who are writing it.
1: Yeah, I'm sure like if you get down to like just the, the regular folks, they're going to be a lot more... Flexible about that kind of thing because like what do they care? Maybe they have different beliefs. Yeah, like the Middle Ages is not the monolith of Christian morality that we often think of it as Definitely wasn't the bishop saying this is the way and not letting anything that says that's not how people actually behave end up in the records
0: Yeah, precisely precisely. I'm just impressed that we have so many specific names Mm -hmm. of people who were okay with this written down
1: Maybe Raikkoner is really attractive, or maybe they're just good company, who knows? I was
0: gonna say, they're just really good friends, man. Like yeah. that's, <laughs> oh, it would be hard to be Raikkoner. Like point blank, even like, whoa, oh.
1: Yeah, life as a sex worker is probably hard. And I'm sure it's hard, especially when it's illegal. But I, also Raikkoner seems to be doing all right for themselves.
0: That's true, that's true. I just mean, I think that consistently trying to pass would
1: be oh, well, difficult. Oh, yeah, that's probably a challenge.
0: That's that's more in the line of what I'm thinking. It's so courageous to to take, you know. You've just been with this guy, and you steal his wife's dresses. You're like, nah. no, no, no,
1: not his wife's dresses. His dresses. Remember, this is when everyone wears gowns.
0: Ah,
1: okay. gown like a judge's robe.
0: Okay, understood. Understood. Yes. Still, that's like the cojones, man.
1: I, I honestly have a lot of respect for this person.
0: Yeah, you have to. Anyway, continue
1: yeah, so while they're working at the pub, during that time, two Franciscans, one named Brother Michael and the other Brother John, who gave him a gold ring, and one Carmelite friar and six foreign men committed the above-said vice with him, of whom one gave Reichner 12 pence, one 20 pence, and one 2 shillings. Reichenor further confessed that he went to Beaconsfield and there, as a man, had sex with a certain Joan, daughter of John Matthew, and also there two foreign Franciscans had sex with him as a woman. Interesting. So that's why I said like this is someone who's probably more maybe gender fluid.
0: Yeah. Because it yeah. seems
1: like the strategy here is I'm Eleanor when I want to sleep with men and I'm John when I want to sleep with women.
0: Okay. But question, why is it not? Why can it not be lady? I don't know. Sarah and Eleanor. Is that is that the court saying, oh, you're obviously going to be a top in that oh. instance? Or or like like you can still be a top and be a lady.
1: Ah, so you're suggesting that in that in fact he did not have sex with a certain Joan as a man, but maybe Joan had an instrument.
0: Well, no, no, not even that. Just that that individual that Reikener still presented as a woman. Oh yeah. And identified as a woman, but took the top role in that relationship. For instance.
1: That's interesting. That might be so. Like they might just be assuming that he presents as male when he's with women
0: yeah that's that's my big question there is like, okay, we've seen I don't know five, ten instances of Reikoer presenting as a woman in these sexual relationships and the one time so far that Reikoer is. I was
1: gonna say so far. Yeah, oh, is there more? Oh yeah, Reikoer gets around.
0: Dang, all right, keep going. It's like Victor Hugo up in here. Victor Hugo Was it wasn't it at Hugo?
1: I don't know. I don't know much about Victor Hugo's personal life.
0: Oh, he was—he was supposed to, like f- all the brothels in Paris essentially like shut down when he died in, in mourning. Is is the legend?
1: That's pretty great, honestly.
0: Let me let me find this. Keep going. Let me see if I can find it.
1: John Reicher also confessed that after his last return to London, a certain Sir John, once chaplain at the Church of Saint Margaret Pattens, and two other chaplains committed with him the aforementioned vice in the lanes behind Saint Catherine's Church by the Tower of London. Reikener further said that he often had sex as a man with many nuns and also had sex with a man with many women, both married and otherwise. How many? He did not know. Wow. That's something that you really have to respect. Him going like, look, I've slept with a lot of nuns. How many? I don't know. I lost count. Oh my gosh. <laughs> if we're thinking about like the convent as like a place where medieval lesbians might lock to, mm-hmm. maybe he is definitely presenting as female when he visits the nuns.
0: Yeah, it's very unclear. Yeah. yeah. Okay, also, a police source informed Edmund Goncourt that the brothels were shuttered and the city's prostitutes had bedecked their crotches with black crepe in honor of the great man's passing.
1: I've gotta say that's awesome.
0: So there you go. Whether that's because he got around or like, mm-hmm. but there, there's the quote for you.
1: I feel like that would be a good sendoff: is to have people bedecking their crotches in black crape in mourning.
0: <laughs> it's a heck of a, it's a heck of a stance. Anyway,
1: Reikener further confessed that many priests had committed that vice with him as a woman. How many he did not know, and he said that he accommodated priests more readily than other people because they wished to give him more, as in money, I think, than others. And that's it. That's it's ju- that's the entire entry. It's just this is a thing that happened. We're not sure what to do about it, but we got the testimony.
0: Wow. So we have no idea what occurred.
1: Yeah. No, that's the end of the entry. Wow. And here is the uh, summary by our uh, early 20th century scholar who wanted to make sure they included everything that was relevant to our knowledge of the period, but nothing that wasn't. Right. <clears throat> Examination of two men charged with immorality, of whom one implicated several persons, male and female, in religious orders. That, that's it? That's it. That's, that's the whole thing.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Oh my gosh, there's no, there There can't be any, you know, social impact here. There's no... Well,
1: uh, I I think he just didn't want to talk about it. Like, that's one of the reasons that a lot of this, there's so little historical record, is because even the people whose job it is to record this stuff...
0: Didn't want to talk about it. I
1: don't don't want to translate that part. And someone else had to come along later and find out it was there and translate it.
0: That's incredible. Well, this is a perfect segue into... This article that I have, which is by Lincolnen. I don't have their first name because the article does not include it, which is odd. But I'll find it and stick it on the blog and in the show notes. But it's a chapter, and it is from same-sex sexuality in later medieval English culture. The chapter is Silencing the Unmentionable Vice. and. Highlighting some of this stuff. We cited this earlier when talking about the Anchoresses. So that's also from this article. Yeah, Augustine never talks about it explicitly. Alcuin, an Anglo-Saxon scholar of the ninth century, included incest and adultery in his writings about sexual sins, but did not consider any same-sex acts at all, which I think is interesting.
1: Yeah, especially since, again, there's no way he wasn't aware of it. It was well known in other cultures in the same time and region. Precisely.
0: Ruth Karras' conclusion that there were no cases to be found in English church courts outside London points towards an exhaustive evidence on silence. So the idea that homosexuality is the, quote, unmentionable vice. Uh, And I had the great opportunity to study with Professor Karras, actually, in Trinity.
1: Ruth Karras is the person who, uh, well, co-wrote, there are two authors listed, co-wrote the article that I got that, this, that summary and translation from yes, that I just Yes,
0: she has, she has done this exclusively, and I did not have the opportunity to take a class directly with her, but she was one of my advisors and just, oh, I wish there were more hours in a day and I, I could have taken a class with her because she's just brilliant. But anyway, apart from the curious case of John slash Eleanor Reichener, it seems that nothing is to be found either in court records from the University of Oxford or those of York Minster as already noted. These silences seem to be strikingly apparent in the legal history of later medieval England legally. There seems to have been only very little explicit consideration of same-sex sexual matters, and the rest is silence. The silence about same-sex sexuality was, in many ways, manifested in English laws by the very lack of any law clearly concerning it. And then it also notes that Chaucer also does not explicitly mention any same-sex sexual activity, although sexual acts are very much present in his writings themselves. So that's also fascinating to me. But here we go. The author here further argues that, quote, the use of such euphemisms constituted not just keeping silent concerning the matter, it was also a common way of discussing it. So even in, like, again, as we see in this court case, they're not saying what it is. They don't have a way of, of, I mean, there were ways to say homosexuality. But they're not saying it. They're calling it the unmentionable vice.
1: Right. Like and the closest they'll get is by saying he had sex as mm-hmm. a woman.
0: Mm-hmm. Or that lecherous act.
1: Yeah. Like there doesn't seem to be a, a word. They have to construct mm-hmm. a phrase.
0: Mm-hmm. There's also a fascinating acknowledgement here from Robert of Flamborough's penitential book, which was 13th century. And it was one of the most circulated handbooks for confessors. It notes, quote, I never make mention to him of something from which he can take the occasion of sin. So basically, I'm not going to mention a sin to somebody if it's going to tempt them, but only of generalities which all know to be sins. But masturbation I extract painfully from him and similarly from a woman. But of the manner of extracting it, it is not to be written down. That's a terrifying (laughs) phrase. Yes, I know.
1: Masturbation I extract painfully? (laughs) I don't like that. I don't like those words going together. No,
0: it's a very, it's a, it's very, very uncomfortable.
1: It sounds like he's doing something physical and unpleasant.
0: I know. He's not because he's a confessor. So hopefully he's not, if he's any good at his job. Right. but
1: (laughs) Like, I know what he means, but just the way it's phrased. I know, it's it's very, very
0: bad. The author notes, after cautioning his readers to avoid telling about these sins against nature, the text makes it clear that masturbation is a different thing, and that it is is not among the unmentionables. So things like sodomy and masturbation, okay, we have words for this, we're going to talk about it, but when it comes to same-sex relationships, shh. We're not going to talk about it. It's not a thing. And part of me is very, very curious because, of course, all the Christian texts, you know, condemn it immediately. But part of me always goes back to wondering if we don't talk about it, it's not a concern. And if it's not a concern, I don't have to worry about getting caught, if that makes sense. It becomes more permissible if you just don't talk about it.
1: But you can also see that maybe they're playing the long game is by like a campaign of silence eventually all of the more accepting viewpoints will just kind of dry yeah. up. Yeah. Like we see today, people are like, oh, this transgender thing, that that's just a trend that popped up in the last 20 years mm-hmm. or so. And it's, it's because just by not talking about it for so long, anyone who's not directly involved with it has at some point forgotten it existed. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's just by keeping it out of public That
0: or even, you know, consider consider a young teenager who might be figuring that out about themselves and then realizing, okay, well, no one's talking about this. It's not normal. So I'm just never going to talk about it either. And I'm just going to, you know, present as heterosexual because apparently whatever is up here in my head and in my heart and whatever just doesn't exist for anybody else.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that this is part of the whole strategy for how, like, bishops and, and other, like, Moral authorities try and make the public conception of morality fall in line with their conception of morality. It's just instead of railing against and punishing it, we're just going to keep anyone from talking mm-hmm. about it. And maybe it'll become less common because no one knows about it and it'll just fade yep. away.
0: Yep. Interestingly, this article also notes that in, and I'm probably going to say his name wrong, I'm going to say it the like Anglo way. In Avicenna's text, and Avicenna is a Middle Eastern philosopher, in his text, Mm -hmm. it is pointed out that it is impossible to find a cure for these men, that is, homosexuals, for their disease is meditative, not natural. So that is, it's a disease of the mind, not a natural disease that affects the body. It's not something you can cure, Mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting because apparently He'd figured it out. He doesn't necessarily say whether it's quote-unquote approved of. And by saying we don't have a cure for it, there is an implication that there is something wrong. So that's not to say that he's approving or advocating or accepting of homosexuality. But it is interesting that he makes a mental distinction of homosexuality as a state of being and not a disease. Which some people still think you can catch the gay.
1: There's a bit here where we have a, oh, I think I remember hearing, I think I remember reading, and I did some extra reading just now so I can accurately say. It seems that the medieval Islamic world was much more tolerant of same-sex relationships than medieval Europe. While they were officially frowned upon in some places... They were much more openly discussed and kind of unofficially accepted than in Europe. And the image a lot of us have now of the Islamic world being less tolerant towards those things is really just a result of a fairly recent trend, relatively speaking, of fundamentalist leaders. Historically, the Islamic world was much more tolerant of this sort of thing than Europe.
0: I think that's what I have on that one. Oh, okay, here's something that's interesting, actually. And this is pure commentary in the article itself. Quote, The method of handling desires considered deviant by not handling them would also suggest an absence of the need to confess, especially in the case of same-sex sexual activity. Uh Yeah. So if if we Uh don't talk about it, then you don't need to confess it. So either you can keep getting away with it, or it's just never brought up. And therefore you don't engage in it. It's sort of the back and forth on that one. Oh, oh, here we go back to uh, Reichenor because it does go down there. For Karma Lockrey, the secret sin against nature as the unmentionable vice is gender. And in John slash Eleanor Reichenor's gender crossing court case, the crime that they are questioned for is repeatedly described as the unmentionable one. Um, And that gets into some of the some of the Latin there. Mm -hmm. The choice of words here is tame compared to some cases describing prostitution found by Carras, where, quote, the stinking and horrible sin of lechery was without difficulty uh, repeatedly written down in several London court records. Instead, later in Reikner's case, the unmentionable and unspeakable are further referred to as the above said and aforementioned. Reikner's detestable deeds were precisely unmentionable vices. Again, because we we don't know how to define them. They didn't know how to define them. So there you go. That's what I've got. I have... Yes.
1: One last story, then. All right. So I was originally going to read from The Golden Legend, but the translation I have is Caxton's translation, and it's a little old-fashioned, obviously, because Caxton is barely out of the Middle Ages himself, (laughs) if at all, depending (laughs) on how you define the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. So instead, I got this book through Interlibrary Loan.
0: Ooh, hooray. We love Interlibrary Loan.
1: Yes. And it is entitled... Holy Women of Byzantium, Ten Saints' Lives in English Translation. And since this is not public domain, I am going to tell you the editor and translator so we can give them proper credit. Yes. This is edited by Alice Mary Talbot, and the translator is Nicholas Constus. And this is interesting because, as you may have picked up from the fact that I mentioned the Golden Legend, dear listeners, this person is a saint, and for... Most of history, it seems like they didn't think of this as a transgender issue. There are actually multiple saints with similar stories, but I think knowing what we know now, there is an argument that could be made that this is a transgender saint. All right. So, the life and conduct of the Blessed Mary, who changed her name to Marinos.
0: That's pretty explicit straight off the bat. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. Just just like all of our other like possibly trans medieval people, the only question is, did they think of themselves as having a different gender identity?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, whether or not they lived as a gender identity different than the one they were given at birth is pretty clear yeah. they did.
0: This is why identity is so important, and this is why listening to people and how they self-identify is really important. And this goes beyond sexuality. It goes into personality and what you want to do. Like when your friend says, no, 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 I don't want to do this, or uh, I want to do this instead. Or when your kids are picking a college major and they want to say, I want to be an artist, I don't want to be an engineer, or I want to be an engineer, I don't want to be an artist, whatever it is. This is why identity is really, really important because you can't understand someone's identity if you don't listen to their words themselves. And we don't have the words of these people specifically. We have other people talking about their identity. We have records of their actions and how they identify and how they act. But we don't know what was in their head. And so it's a huge loss that we don't have any you know primary documents about that perspective. But that's just broadening this out just a little bit. Sexuality is important. Identity is important. But identity in all areas is really important, regardless of how you sexually identify or religiously identify. So make sure that you feel comfortable or you have a group as much as you can where you are comfortable identifying how you want to identify is my point there. So
1: Back into gender identity for a bit. This is also one of the casualties of that whole campaign of silence we were talking about in that even if we could have asked Mary slash Marinos or John slash Eleanor, How do you identify what gender do you like vibe with? They would likely not have the vocabulary to really express it because it's not written down. It's not talked about. Because of this silence, like maybe they had talked to other people who had similar experiences and figured something out, but maybe they hadn't. Like, would they be able to even express themselves without a community in which that language is preserved and discussed? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, the actual story. There was a certain man named Eugenios. I don't actually know how to pronounce Greek names, so I'm pronouncing it as if it's kind of spanish But it's Eugene. There we go. (laughs) Who lived in purity, piety, and in the fear of God. He had an honorable and devout wife who bore him a daughter whom he named Mary. When his wife died, the father raised the child with much teaching and in the ways of a pious life. When the young girl grew up, her father said to her, My child, behold, all that I own I place in your hands, for I am departing in order to save my soul. Hearing these things said by her father, the young girl said to him, Father, do you wish to save your own soul and leave mine destroyed? Do you not know what the Lord says, that the good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep? And again she said to him, The one who saves the soul is like the one who created it. Hearing these things, her father was moved to compunction at her words, for she was weeping and lamenting. He therefore began to speak to her, and said, Child, what am I to do with you? You are a female, and I desire to enter a monastery. How then can you remain with me? For it is through the members of your sex that the devil wages war on the servants of God. To which his daughter responded, Not so, my lord, for I shall not enter the monastery as you say, but I shall first cut off the hair of my head, and clothe myself as a man, and then enter the monastery with you. And... This is an interesting thing because this is being presented as they want to live a holy life. And so they're going to the monastery with their father. But you can live a holy life as a woman. You can be a nun. Mm-hmm. We talked about anchorites Again, I, I still think they have it made. And there doesn't seem to be any indication that Marinos wants to go to the monastery to stay with their father. That's an idea the father introduces. Right. Marinos is just like, I also want to go to a monastery.
0: I just also want to say that that's an incredibly destructive thing to tell a child, that it is their sex which the devil uses to destroy mankind.
1: Yes, but that is also basically Christian doctrine. Uh, Like, I know it's not something that you believe in your faith, but I mean, that is how a lot of people interpret Eve.
0: And they're wrong, and I have an argument for it that is both historical and biblical. But regardless, yes, that is that is how some people interpret it. I'm just saying it's an incredibly destructive thing to say.
1: Problematic patriarchy. Yes, well, most things that come from a place of repressive patriarchal societies are pretty destructive. <laughs> yes, that's, I'm gonna say. that's true. <laughs> yeah, so basically, the father's joining a monastery. The daughter says... I also want to live the holy life. Father says you can't come. You're a girl. And instead of saying, I'll go to a convent, Mm -hmm. she says, I'll become a monk.
0: She's my new hero, man. That's so cool.
1: The father, after distributing all his possessions among the poor, followed the advice of his daughter and cut off the hair of her head, dressed her in the clothing of a man, and changed her name to Marinos. And he charged her saying, child, Take heed how you conduct yourself, for you are about to enter into the midst of fire, for a woman in no way enters into a male monastery. Because there there were multi-sex monasteries, but they were mostly suppressed because you can't have people, like, interacting with the other sex. Yeah. If, as a church, you want to preserve, A, the appearance of chastity, and B, the requirements of being a repressive patriarchal institution.
0: Problematic Yeah, like it's, it comes back to the uh, incredibly wrong traditional Christian belief, which is not doctrine, but tradition, which is why I'm emphasizing it, that if you put a man and a woman in a room, something must happen that is sexual, and that is just so wrong on so many levels. But for some reason, even today, there is such an emphasis on if you put two people in a room together, and they're young, they're gonna have sex. And it's just such a silly idea to me. But uh, anyway, that's my point there is that that's where this idea is coming from.
1: While that is also the official reasoning behind why uh, multi sex monasteries kind of stopped being a thing by decree, I also kind of suspect that it was a way to take power away from female abbesses by not letting them have control over men. And Also, by keeping the sexes isolated from each other, we end up with weird, we end up with limited knowledge about exactly this sort of thing, which is why you had your earlier people who didn't know what orgasms were or (laughs) how sex worked. Yes,
0: precisely.
1: Future Mac here. If you're interested in this, I would strongly recommend reading up on double monasteries, which was the official term. They are quite interesting. They were frequently run by female abbesses, and they were officially banned in the 8th century at the Second Council of Nicaea. And since the beginning of that decision is actually highly relevant, let me read it. Double monasteries are henceforth forbidden. If a whole family wishes to renounce the world together, the men must go into convents for men, the female members of the family in convents for women. It seems that the situation of Marinos and their father was actually something that happened. There were times when family members all wished to abandon the secular world and take holy orders. And the official stance of the church was, That's great, but you have to do it in a gender-segregated manner. Which means that Marinos' decision to take holy orders as a man rather than a woman is very definitely a choice. Like, not just something they fell into. It is a choice. But, the father is still talking, preserve yourself therefore blameless before God so that we may fulfill our vows. And taking his daughter, he entered the Cenobitic Monastery. Day by day, the child advanced in all the virtues, in obedience, in humility, and in much asceticism. Asceticism? I never know how to say that word. I think it's asceticism. After she lived thus for a few years in the monasteries, some of the monks considered her to be a eunuch, for she was beardless and of delicate voice. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I think in some versions of the legend, uh, this is actually the the backstory that Marinos gives, is I'm a eunuch. Mm, hmm That's why I might look kind of feminine to you.
0: Yeah. Makes sense.
1: Others considered that this condition was indeed the result of her great asceticism, for she partook of food only every second day. Eventually, it came to pass that her father died. But Mary, remaining in the monastery, because no matter what her father thinks, this was not about staying with him. This was about her wanting to live as a monk. Right. Let's say now, I can see a lot of reasons why a very pious medieval woman might want to become a monk instead of a nun, But most of them have to do with, if you want to advance in the ranks of the church, you have to be male. Yeah. If you just want to live a life of pious asceticism, you can do it either way. Yeah. But Mary, remaining in the monastery, continued to progress in asceticism and in obedience, so that she received from God the gift of healing those who were troubled by demons. For if she placed her hand on any of the sick, they were immediately healed. Living together within the Kenobitic, Cenobitic? The monastery, were 40 men. Now once a month, four of the brethren were officially sent forth to minister to the needs of the monastery, because they were responsible for looking after other monks as well, the solitaries who lived outside the community. Hermits, I assume is what we're talking about here, or anchorites. Yes. Midway on their journey was was an inn, where both those going and those coming were, on account of the great distance, accustomed to stop and rest. That's what inns are for. Moreover, the innkeeper provided the monks with many courtesies, accommodating them each with particular solicitude. One day, the superior, summoning Abba, which we're told is both the local equivalent of abbot, but also just a respectful term of address for any holy man.
0: Abba is father, by the way.
1: Yeah. It's spelled like the Swedish band, <laughs> if anyone was wondering. <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, Marinos said to him, Brother, I know your conduct, how in all things you are perfect and unwavering in your obedience. Be willing, then, to go forth and attend to the needs of the monastery, for the brethren are annoyed that you do not go forth unto service. For in doing this you will obtain a greater reward from God." Like, stop praying and being ascetic for a bit. We've got, like, an errand you're supposed to run, and you've been slacking. At these words, Marinos fell down at his feet, and said, "'Father, pray for me, and wherever you direct me, there I shall go.' One day, therefore, when Marinos had gone forth unto service, along with three other brethren, and while they were all lodging at the inn, it came to pass that a certain soldier deflowered the innkeeper's daughter, who thereupon became pregnant. Oh, no. I'm sure you see where this is going, because as I was reading this, I kept having the feeling like I've read this story before. This is like a trope.
0: We've mentioned this before, I feel
1: like. We might have, but I can't place where it would have been. No,
0: neither can I. I don't remember. But anyway.
1: The soldier said to her, if your father should learn of this, say that it was the young monk who slept with me. Her father, upon realizing that she was pregnant, questioned her closely, saying, How did this happen to you? And she placed the blame on Marinos, saying, The young monk from the monastery, the attractive one called Marinos, he made me pregnant. Thoroughly outraged, the innkeeper made his way to the monastery, shouting accusations and saying, Where is that charlatan, that pseudo-Christian, whom you call a Christian? When one of the stewards came to meet him, he said, Welcome. But the innkeeper replied, The hour was an evil one in which I made your acquaintance. In like manner he said to the father superior may I never see another monk and other such things when
0: he w- <laughs> <laughs> I get
1: it yeah. when he was asked why he was saying these things he answered I had but a single daughter who I hoped would support me in my old age but look at what Marinos has done to her he whom you call a christian he has deflowered her and she is pregnant the superior said to him What can I do for you, brother, since Marinos is not here at the moment? When he returns from his duties, however, I will have no recourse but to expel him from the monastery. When Marinos returned with the three other monks, the superior said to him, Is this your conduct, and is this your asceticism, that while lodging at the inn, you deflowered the innkeeper's daughter, and now her father, coming here, has made us all a spectacle of the laity? Hearing these things, Marinos fell upon his face, saying, Forgive me, father, for I have sinned as a man. But the superior, filled with wrath, cast him out, saying, Never again shall you enter this monastery. Leaving the monastery, Marinos immediately sat down outside the monastery gate, and there endured the freezing cold and the burning heat. Thereafter those entering the monastery used to ask him, Why are you sitting outdoors? To which he would reply, Because I fornicated, and have been expelled from the monastery. When the day arrived for the innkeeper's daughter to give birth, she bore a male child and the girl's father took the infant and brought it to the monastery. Finding Marinos sitting outside the gate, he threw the child down before him, which seems like not something you should do with a baby. Can we place the child down <laughs> gently?
0: I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna say that's a bit of artistic license there, just, uh, just for my own sanity. Yeah.
1: And said, here is the child which you have wickedly engendered. Take it. And immediately the innkeeper departed. Marinos, picking up the child, was filled with distress and said, yes, I have received the just reward for my sins. But why should this wretched babe perish here with me? Accordingly, he undertook to procure milk from some shepherds, and so nursed the child as its father. But the distress that overwhelmed him was not all, for the child, whimpering and wailing, continually soiled his garments.
0: That's what babies do.
1: The translation has in brackets that this might mean Marinos' garments, but honestly it could also mean the baby's garments.
0: I mean, does it matter? Babies barf.
1: Yeah, I'm going to assume that it's both. If the baby yeah. <laughs> has garments in it, they are probably also soiled. After the passage of three years, the monks entreated the superior, saying, Father, forgive this brother. His punishment is sufficient, for he has confessed his fault to all. But when they saw that the superior remained unmoved, the brethren said, If you do not receive him back, then we too will leave the monastery. For how can we ask God to forgive our sins, when today marks the third year that he has been sitting in the open air beyond the gate and we do not forgive him? The superior, considering these things, said to them, For the sake of your love, I accept him. And summoning Marinos, he said to him, On account of the sin which you have committed, you are not worthy to resume your former position here. Nevertheless, on account of the brethren's love, I accept you back into our ranks, but only as the last and least of all. At this Marinos began to weep, and said, Even this is a great thing for me, my lord, for you have deemed me worthy to come inside the gate so that I might thus be given the honor of serving the Holy Fathers. Consequently, the superior assigned him the lowliest chores of the monastery, and he performed them all scrupulously and with great devotion. But the child was forever following him about, crying and saying, Dada, Dada, and such things as children say, when they wish to eat. Thus, in addition to the usual trials and temptations that beset a monk, Marinus was continually anxious about procuring and providing sustenance for the child. When the boy grew up, he remained in the monastery, and having been raised in the practice of virtues, he was deemed worthy of the monastic habit. One day, after a considerable passage of time, the superior inquired of the brethren, Where is Marinos? Today is the third day that I have not seen him singing in the choir. He was always the first to be found standing there before the start of the service. Go to his cell, and see whether he is lying ill. Going to his cell, they found him dead, and informed the superior, saying, Brother Marinos has died. But the superior said, in what state did his wretched soul depart? What defense can he make for the sin that he committed? Having thus spoken, the superior then directed that Marinos be buried.
0: Wait, 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 wait. The superior immediately is like, oh, he's dead because he sinned?
1: Pretty much. Or I think he's more like, uh, he's dead and he's probably not going to heaven.
0: Oh my gosh, sir. Sir. I don't like this guy. No, he
1: seems pretty unpleasant.
0: No, he should not be in charge of any religious institution, or any institution (laughs) for that matter. (laughs) But okay. Marino's like... (sighs) All right. Okay, keep going.
1: All right, so they're, they're preparing Marino's to be buried. But as they were preparing to wash him, they discovered that he was a woman. And shrieking, they all began to cry out in a single voice, Lord, have mercy. The superior, hearing their cries, asked them, What troubles you so?
0: (laughs) I mean, um, (laughs) you got the wrong man,
1: son. And they said, Brother Marinos is a woman. Drawing near and seeing for himself, the superior cast himself down at her feet, and with many tears cried out, Forgive me, for I have sinned against you. I shall lie dead here at your holy feet, until such time as I hear forgiveness for all the wrongs that I have done you. And while he was uttering many such lamentations, as well as things yet more remarkable, a voice spoke to him, saying, Had you acted knowingly, this sin would not be forgiven you, but since you acted unknowingly, your sin is forgiven. The superior thereupon sent word to the innkeeper to come and see him. When he arrived, the superior said to him, Marinos is dead. The innkeeper replied, May God forgive him, for he has made of my house a desolation. But the superior said to him, You must repent, brother you have sinned before god you also incited me by your words and for your sake i also sinned for Marino's is a woman hearing this the innkeeper was astonished and wondered greatly at his words and the superior took the innkeeper and showed him that Marino's was a woman
0: look that's a lot of parading around a dead body but i get it yeah i mean it's been three years or four years or whatever
1: at this the innkeeper began to lament and to marvel at what had happened they buried her holy remains and placed them in blessed caskets, all the while glorifying God with psalms and hymns. When these things were completed, the innkeeper's daughter appeared, possessed by a demon, and confessing the truth that she had been seduced by the soldier. And she was immediately healed at the tomb of the Blessed Mary, who is now being now Mary again, apparently.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, because, you know, there's, there's no way that someone who has been you know, presenting us one way, their entire life should be respected after death in that way.
1: And everyone glorified God because of this sign, and because of Mary's patient endurance. For she vigorously endured her trials until death, refusing to make herself known. Let us then, beloved, zealously emulate the blessed Mary and her patient endurance, so that on the day of judgment we may find mercy from our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory and dominion to the ages of ages. Amen. And so I would argue that this is a transgender saint.
0: There's a strong argument for that. I also think that it is absolutely laudable that this kid picked up a baby and said, okay, well, your family doesn't want you, so I will raise you, Mm -hmm. even though the consequences are going to ruin my life. Like, that's impressive.
1: I think one of the things that to me most, like, signifies that this is Marinos, not Mary, mm-hmm. is that they wanted to continue living as a monk so much that they just accepted this accusation and even confessed to it, even though they could have yeah. easily proven that they were yeah. completely f- innocent.
0: Yeah, that's that's really, really and then, impressive. and then gone
1: and be Sister Mary in a convent somewhere like this is. Yeah, that was an option available and they decided i would rather continue being marinos even if it means i have to do this penance
0: no i think i think it's a very very strong case that's fascinating wow ooh let's see yeah i see
1: well, you have well i have, have some... nothing oh do you not have more well
0: i don't have any i don't have anything for the church law and this is exclusively talking about what the church did in this instance but i guess i can juxtapose that with some stuff about sodomy in medieval secular law By Michael Goodrich. There's just a couple interesting notes here that I found. There were a lot of different things that people thought were associated with homosexuality, including, like, witches' rites, where supposedly you, like, get down and you kiss... You kiss Satan's asshole in order to be initiated, because that's, like, the most profane thing that you can possibly do. There's a lot of
1: analingus and heresy accusations.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's very... I don't know. There's another note here that such pseudosexual rites of initiation were also ascribed to the most well known victims of sexual obscurantism, the Order of the Knight Templars, which I thought was fascinating because the Knights Templar were supposed to be sort of a bastion of Christianity. And yet, even concurrently in that culture, they were sort of brought low by accusations yeah. of like weird sexuality. I'm pretty
1: sure the accusations of about the Knights Templar are where we get the name Baphomet from because that that particular like mistransliteration of Muhammad was the one that showed up in the accusations against the Knights Templar.
0: Interesting. But I'm just Ooh, working I from memory that.
1: there. I could be completely wrong.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Also noted in this article in English law, it would appear that sexual morality fell early under church authority and crimes against nature were identified with heresy, which makes sense if you're dealing with something that is more, I guess, judicial, in a very specific sense, like money laundering or something like that, that's going to be more under the crown and less under the church, but with something that is against nature, Mm -hmm. like homosexual sex. In their persuasion, it would be under the church and not under the state. So the instances of sodomy in secular law are not as well known just because the church took care of it. The state didn't. But let's see. Here we go. Here's a Perugian law code in 1342 is particularly important for this commune was the breeding ground of several lay con fraternities, including the flagellant movement, which spiked during some of the plagues, which I think is fascinating.
1: I was going to say, like, that's where I knew them from is the Black Death.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Its Society of the Virgin was founded as early as 1233 by Peter Martyr and was presumably early entrusted with the pursuit of sexual offenders and heretics. The law code provided that 40 men were to be chosen, eight from each of the five quarters of the city to investigate and denounce sodomites. So there is, in fact, a squad of people who are sodomite hunting, if you will.
1: The sodomy squad. So
0: I thought that was very interesting, because it sort of contrasts with the idea of it as the unmentionable vice. Mm -hmm. Because very clearly in this case, here's a law code where you have the sodomy squad going around knocking on doors. Are you a sodomite, sir? (laughs) You know,
1: it's like, eh. I wonder if they did like modern police departments do and did undercover work. Because like, that's how modern vice squads do their thing, which... Is terrible because we should support sex workers, not persecute or prosecute them. But
0: that's that's an idea. I I wonder how far that went in the Middle Ages. But there you go. I wouldn't
1: be surprised if that was how they found people. They'd be like, hey, yeah, do you want to like engage in sodomy? And if they said yes, I tricked you. You're under arrest.
0: (laughs) You're under arrest. I don't know. But uh, in uh, I don't know how to say the Italian of this. I think it's belog Bologna is how we say the food, but I think it's technically Bologna because it's the Italian word. But anyway, in that city, whoever dwelt in a building where sodomy was practiced might be burned along with the house.
1: What, just to make sure in case it was contagious?
0: I guess that's what they did with the plague. Well, that's what they did with the plague in Pisa.
1: Wait, so does that mean that in medieval times they also thought you could catch the gay?
0: I think so. I think that's what it's saying here, but... uh, Yeah, so this is just saying, like, burn the people in the house, regardless of whether or not they were an actual sodomite or just living with them. Mm -hmm. Because why would you live with a sodomite if you weren't one? I suppose is the implication there. But here we go. Of all the Italian law codes, the fullest clauses dealing with sodomy came from Florence, Perugia, Perugia, and Siena, uh, which makes sense. The prevalence of pederasty in Florence led the Germans to dub pederasts Florenzer and their acts Florenzen. So that tells you how active it was in Florence.
1: In Dante's place and time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. In 1305, the preacher Fra Giordano described the city as a veritable Sodom in which Fathers encouraged their sons to engage in vice for profit. The 15th century chronicler Matteo Grifioni claimed that the destruction of one third of Florence by floods in 1333 was attributed at the time to sodomy practiced by its inhabitants.
1: I feel like we should have kept the, like, Florentian as a word for gay. Because it's completely analogous to lesbian.
0: That's true. That's very true. That would have been something...
1: Ooh, and as far as I know, people from Lesbos have never complained about that.
0: I don't know, but w- wouldn't it be interesting if you said, "Oh, they've got a very Floren, you know, Florentine style of dress." Yeah, you know, that's interesting.
1: Or like, "Mom, Dad, I'm a Florentian."
0: <laughs> oh no! Oh man. Interestingly, we get back into pederasty, which was punishable by castration. Quote, a youth under 14 years of age who voluntarily, which how voluntary is it, but regardless, Mm -hmm. submitted to the act, was beaten, driven through the city naked, and fined 50 lira. If he was between 14 and 18, he paid a fine of 100, while a woman who permitted herself to be sodomized, presumably in a straight relationship, it doesn't specify, but a woman who permitted herself to be sodomized received the same punishment as an underage boy. Such an act perpetrated by a panderer, his associate, or a perennial criminal, resulted in a 500 der fine If the sum was not paid, his hand was cut off. If he had no hand, then his foot. A father who persuaded his son to commit such an act was punished in the same way. Any dwelling or other place which in which the act was committed was destroyed or laid waste. Wow. So, yes. They just burn it all.
1: That's a thing-
0: there's, I mean, there's a lot there.
1: Yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure how to digest it.
0: No, it's, it's one of those things you just sort of read and you're like, wow. It's interesting that the younger individuals who are also presumably the bottoms were not punished as heavily because I think there was some sense of either consent non-consent or them being younger and not knowing what the heck was going on or like the whole thing is just weird because it's all in the law but it's so very foreign to us Mm -hmm. and it's just like what do you do with that like they're spelling it out in the law but they're not they're not stating that it's wrong Uh, but there we go. Yes. So yes, Savonarola also would burn people for sodomy. Savonarola is a very well known Florentian preacher.
1: Is he a well known Florentian?
0: <laughs> I don't think he's a well known Florentine, but he lived in Florence. But he was sort of known for his reign of terror and ridiculous preaching and burning of books and also of individuals. So we don't really like him. If you want to kill him, you can do that in Assassin's Creed. There you go. <laughs> I just had to put that up there.
1: I thought that his name sounded familiar. Not yes. from Assassin's Creed. I haven't played it. But as like just a generally known historical asshole.
0: Yes, he is one of those generally known historical assholes. Like
1: Torquemada or his ilk.
0: Yeah, but there you go. That's, that's what I have on sodomy in secular law as opposed to church law. Hmm. There we go.
1: If anything, they seem harsher.
0: I mean, you're forgetting that the Inquisition existed.
1: Well, yeah. Did the Inquisition also treat it like a plague?
0: I don't know if they treated it like a plague, because that's the that's flagellants, but the Inquisition No, I mean, like, did they burn houses
1: down and stuff?
0: They certainly burned people. I think that's, that's worse than property
1: damage. That is accurate. Although I assume the people are in the house at the time they're burning it.
0: I think that would be the aim. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. But yes, so there we go. It's, I will say, broadly speaking, quite a depressing sort of range of lifestyles um, for for the people who identified as queer. At the time there was not a lot of freedom in that in that world so we're very lucky to be living in the day and time we are even if there is still more work to be done on that front.
1: At least everyone knows it's a thing now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or like you know, women don't have semen. That's kind of you know, some basic Have biology. you checked? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to Dane reply to that one. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Oh, man. I sort of feel like it would be wrong to to do our usual segments because this is such a heavy topic.
1: Yeah, I kind of agree.
0: Yeah, just because I think while it's important, for instance, let's talk about it in the context of D&D. Please, for the love of all that is holy, be a good player, be a good DM when it comes to how people want to identify and play their characters. You know... Just basics of respect here. Like we're not going to adapt any of this to D anD. d But when it does come to making and playing your own games, I think have you have you ever done the thing where you've made a consent? sheet for your players it's, it's becoming much more common now where there's i mean there's google docs you can do this by email you can you can do it in person you like give give your players each a little sheet of things that they are comfortable with and they that they are not comfortable with for instance gore violence sex sexuality things like that what are, what are they comfortable with seeing on screen so to speak or off screen and that just keeps everyone at the table comfortable and you know everybody's limits. So if people, if like if you are in a really tight-knit group, for instance, then you can explore sexuality and what that looks like. Or for instance, if you want to explore, you know, okay, well, this world is set where homosexual relationships and queerness are not even associated as weird. Boom, you're done. That conversation's over. Anyone can identify as whatever they like. Whatever. But if you want to explore the themes of, okay, what does it look like to be in a a society where that isn't as welcoming, and you want to do that in your game, make sure that that's okay with your players. You know, that just that Mm -hmm. sort of thing, because you can adapt it. And that's one of the great things about D&D is that, you know, you can go wherever you want, but when you can go wherever you want, you have to do so responsibly, and you have to do so with a little bit of forethought. So that's, I think that's our little D&D gaming. This is how you can apply it is think about this stuff.
1: Personally, my approach has always been to say like, whenever I'm world building, it's like, there's nothing wrong with queer relationships. No one thinks of it as weird in this world. Because like, why would they? The vast majority of human cultures have had no problem with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And also like, if we're talking about like your standard D&D, like early elves could swap gender whenever they wanted. I think that was like a first edition elf thing. And then additionally, we're talking about, you know, half orcs and tieflings and everybody's getting with everybody else. So that's all on the spectrum of queerness in one way or another. So it shouldn't be a thing. So unless you decide to make it a theme to explore in your campaign and your entire party is cool with it, just be accepting, be respectful.
1: Yeah, I agree. I have not uh, used a consent thingy-be-jig, but that's probably because I haven't actually DM'd in a few years. I never have the time or the energy. Oh, I
0: know. I'm in the same boat with you. But no, they're they're very useful. You can find them online if you just look it up. And I know they're becoming more and more popular, and I think it's a, a really handy tool for DMs to know their players limits and be able to shut down any problematic behavior that they see at a table. Because I know there, like, I've heard multiple horror stories where, you know, a guy player will try and flirt with another player who's a girl or vice versa or whatever. And it makes the other player really, really uncomfortable. And if you don't have a table that can shut that down, you know, then it's, it's just a toxic environment for everybody. So that's just more along the lines of be a good player, be a good DM. Be respectful. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Any closing remarks? I want to go, I want to at least look at our, our sheet and see what we've got. But no, I think, I think that's about it. Yeah. There we go.
1: Oh, like literally the only thing from this whole discussion that I think would be like, this is an idea for D is you could, you should put Ballas into your campaign. Yeah,
0: there we go. We can use him. Absolutely.
1: Or the the female troubadour Beatrice. Oh yeah, cool.
0: we can we can throw we can throw that word in the uh, the DM's dictionary. We'll add that one.
1: Yes, Tru- Oh Jesus, I'm gonna it? just type it into the chat yes. for you. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong.
0: And I suppose if you want to pull a a uh, Florentian or Sapphic or Lesbos analogy in your own D and D world, mm. you can definitely do that. But you're gonna want to make sure that that's clear to everybody. There we go. Awesome. (laughs) Okay, so I guess we will just close out on that. So there you go. Happy Pride to those who are celebrating or engaging with that. And if you're not, that's okay. Just don't forget to love each other. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, the maniculum podcast to join in on discussions about all things medieval and feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter at maniculum and on Instagram at maniculum podcast. We'd love to hear from you and special thanks to Sandra Boyle who created the music for our show. You can check out her project sugar glass on Spotify.
1: And happy wrath to those of you who celebrate. <laughs>
0: I guess I might cut that. <laughs> I was gonna say, We probably shouldn't have
1: that. Oh no. Okay, I'll stop the recording.